0: In a world where podcasts
1: have become mundane, one soul brother with two left feet is doing his best to give you interviews straight, no chaser. Welcome to Reviews and Done, where you can find interviews
0: with some of your favorite entertainers.
1: going on, world? It's your boy, Derek Dunn, with Reviews and Dunn, back again with an interview. I am highly, highly excited to speak with Mr. Garfield from the 90s R&B group, Shy. Shy gave us many hits, primarily, if I ever fall in love again, with that still, classic remix. However, like many 90s groups, Shy had more hits. And better songs, in my opinion, than if I ever fall in love. So let's welcome Garfield to the line. How you doing today, sir?
0: Jeez, my man, I'm doing pretty good. You know, considering the times we living in right now. You know, <laughs> but yeah, I'm 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 doing good, man. And I appreciate you uh, pointing out that you felt like there were other songs that we had that, that were quality as well. You know, a lot of people oh,
1: yeah. kind of like all of it.
0: Me. Yeah, yeah.
1: Actually, so, man. I'm a fan. So you know, I have every album going from the first one. All the way up to the latest one that dropped in 2018,
0: musically well, Wow! So. wow. Yeah. <laughs> I
1: you about a that. Fan RG, <laughs> a fan of you guys doing four-part harmony and just a fan of knowing what you guys were actually doing. You guys really never got a fair shot, in my opinion. You were kind of pigeonholed by that one song. You know, you while know, it's a classic song, you know there are songs on your albums that hold up just as well to you know the signature hit and I got to say that it's also a blessing to know that you're also now, you know, a doctor. So I yeah. didn't know, you know, Mr. Garfield also has a Ph.D. So should we say Dr. Garfield as opposed to just calling you by your
0: first name? Nah, just, just call me G, man. You can t- take it all the way down to that. That's something that I, I academically, you know, strive for and achieve. But, you know, it doesn't define me. I, I'm, I'm Garfield. I just happen to be R&B platinum singer. That really doesn't define me, you know. I was somebody before that, and the PhD is something that I, I achieved. You know, we were we were college kind of students. We were at Howard. We were all academically, you know, striving for for excellence. And um, I just, you know, it was a tradition in my family in terms of academic excellence. Um, I got a master's prior to the doctorate in, in um, African American Studies. I mean, academic excellence and social responsibility, you know, is the mantra. I was just always cut like that. I was made out of that. People who really, really know me and stuff like that knew I always had straight A's in school and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, um, that's just something I did. But I'm Garfield. I'm G. Call me G, man. You know? If I, try to, if I, write, if I apply for a grant, <laughs> then I'll put comma PhD behind my name for that. But other than that, man, I'm, you know, I, I didn't do it for the uh, status aspect of it or whatever. I did it because I'm a learner. I'm, I'm curious. I wanted to push myself and see how far I can go in this academic thing. And I, I got a terminal degree and um, educational policy studies, and um, you know, that was just something that I, I I felt was inside of me. So instead of listening to people tell me I could do either or, academics or be the singer guy, I did both, and and uh, you know, that's just part of who I am. So yeah, dope, G. Dope. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, well, let's get started, and G. So growing up, who were some of your early musical influences?
0: Oh, that's a great question, man. Um, You know, most people who are in R&B and stuff like that, you know, usually go up in a a gospel-oriented household, you know, with the R&B. But my dad was a jazz guy. So every Sunday in the household, instead of, you know, church music playing and stuff like that, um, I was exposed to just, man, like Carmen McRae, Sarah Vaughn, Billy Eckstein, um, my one and only love. What's my man, um. Johnny Hartman, oh my God, that's my guy right there. Johnny Hartman and John Coltrane had an album. There. So I would be listening to those vocal stylings, you know. You know, Amad Jamal, you know, Tommy Flanagan's, you know, Oscar Peterson's. You know, I like pianos and, of course, Train and Miles. Like just those melody patterns. If you go to a song like um um Yours, the acapella we did, Yours, um, and my verse goes, Ooh, tell me what you need and I will make sure I provide. That's a jazz lit, you know, and I, I put that melody on it because that was me. Um, I inverted the R&B one that Carl had because his verse was dope, man. He was like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, da That's like the R&B kind of classic movement. And then mine came. I was like, yo, I, I got to sing in my style. So I put the melody on it. And, um, so, yeah, that was my influence, and so jazz. But then I was also exposed in heavy doses to the big three, I call them. Um, Marvin Gaye, Donnie Hathaway, and Stevie Wonder. Those are like, I don't care what nobody says in the world. Those are my guys, guys, guys. Especially Stevie, that's that's my man. Like I couldn't even imagine music um, without Stevie ever being a part of you know music in terms of like the singing riff style. That's his style of riff. You can hear the Charlie Wilson, R. Kelly. You know, you can hear Stevie's riff style. Kanye, all these people coming from Stevie. To be honest with you, um, your boy, um, I really hear it in my man. He was signed to MCA. Um, um what's his name? Uh. uh, uh Fly Brother, you know, from Canada. Uh, he was on MCA. He had that song. Um, um, and don't you forget it. Don't um, oh, you forget. What's his name? Gwen Lewis. Yes. He's Stevie Wonder. There's so many Stevie Wonder. Um, and I'm fine, fine, on Cloud Nine. I don't even know. Donnie. That's his name. That dude's name is Donnie. You sound like Stevie. There's so many Stevie's out there. And But lyrically, though what if stevie never hit the planet lyrically like his lyrics were like oh my god and you know just so i i lyrically i took after stevie you know like you'll see like i do some solo stuff i'm gonna release soon and you can really see my my lyrical game and that i take time to craft my lyrics you know and melodically speaking i know nobody melodically that can create chords like stevie and marvin like marvin and stevie's chords were so different and donnie sorry if you hear layla singing she always like she sings cherish the day with um Robert and um her her vocal style and her harmony and melody she could do two no harmony with her own voice like she could sing one like sing out and it'd be two notes harmonizing that's crazy but her melodic structures and, and notes that she goes to is her dad's stuff and nobody does those things so if those three were never in in music oh my god i can't even fathom what r&d would have sounded like you know without those three so those are my influences big time i also love Prince. And, Michael Jackson, like especially the early Michael Jackson, man, like up all up until Off the Wall. You know, I still like them after that, no doubt. Like you know, I, I close to Thriller album and even the later stuff he did, like Butterfly with Marsha and Brochick and stuff that gave that song to him. But the early Michael, the Off the Wall, those kinds of songs, and yeah, Staring in the Mirror. I, I, that's one. I can't help it. All those songs, Woo. so yeah, I'm, I'm big on melodies and lyrics, man. I don't. I, I like more than the two note melody if I can get it from Chilman.
1: How was the group shy formed? We were
0: um, Howard University students, man, and I wasn't in the group initially. It was um, it was Mark, Darnell. I mean, Darnell and um, Carl first. They had like a two man thing because they both pledged Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity back in Howard days, and um, Beta chapter of how, uh, Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity is in is in, um, uh, is in Howard. So they were they pledged beta chapters. So they called their group beta. It was a two man group. And um I was like I was in the Nation of Islam at that time, um, in DC, Mosque number four, you know, doing my thing, running for office on Howard's campus and doing this all kind of activist stuff in my group, Black Lear Force, you know, Grass Baraka, who's the mayor of New, York, New Jersey, was the head of that. Um, at that time. His dad was Leroy Jones, Amir of So we had a lot of activist stuff. But um Darnell and Carl was doing this beta thing. And I was just you know, at the end of kind of like serving my time in the nation um, because I had to, I was struggling in school as a result of all the stuff we were doing with the nation at the time. I mean, it was, we were trying to close down, you know, drug dealers from selling drugs in the projects, you know, um, and clean up the projects in BC, man. You know, Mayfair Mansion being the biggest one. And so because of that, you know, we carried no weapons and the brothers there, we were intruding on their money. So it was kind of like some things. So we always used to have to come, a call out for all the FOI would to come to a place we would have to honor that so even though I campaigned all day um running for office and then my my campaign manager grilled me from 11 to like 1 in the morning I would finally get the crib and at the time we had pages I would get a text or page rather Nine one one. we'd have to go to Mayfair Manson or something and do patrols to like 3 or 4 in the morning and then my first class was like at 8 o'clock in the morning and it was just crazy at that time for me man plus I had just got married and stuff and I was trying to honor all the different things that I was in so I had a I was I was struggling in school, so I went to the you know the, the minister and the captain at the time, and let them know. Look, man, I'm not a quit or anything, but I came to DC to finish what I started. And even though I, I philosophically totally agree with what we're doing, I gotta I, I can't be felling out of school, bro. <laughs> you know. So, and during that time, I kind of got back into school and you know trying to do my due diligence and finding out what I need to do to make my GPA. You know. And so I did that, and I got a 4.0 that, that, that semester when I finally did that, and that's what I needed, that break. And that was my first 4.0. No, I got a 3.6. And um, I got a 3.6. And that was my first time getting such a high GPA at Howard because I, I used to be a chemistry major and it was killing me. Switched to poli-sci. And then at that time is when I, I, I bumped back into Darnell. He had just pledged out for – we were roommates freshman year, um, 17, and, and part of our sophomore year, 18 years old. He was on his own now, but now he was an apple. So I started coming over to his house, just me and D. And um, D was in there. I come with my little Milk Carton, he'll have his little genuine draft, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and we would watch the Five Heartbeats and um on one of his walls in in his place, he had a little duplex, the whole wall was a mirror. And man, look, after Five Heartbeats went off, we'd get in front of that mirror and sing um Joe Joe um um Jodeci. you know, I'll be K C, he'll be Jojo, you know what I'm saying, and we'd be singing like come and talk to me and stuff like that. And, you know, we had these aspirations and dreams. We were like, yo, gee, you need to get in the group, man. We're going to be large one day. You're going to be a front man. I was like, man, please. I ain't going to be a front man. You already got a group. So the other member of the group was Mark Gay, who was also an alpha. Actually, he pledged Darnell and, and, and um, Carl. And uh, he was just an incredible writer, pianist. He's incredible, man. Like, he, during the storm, musically, was him. That's, that's Mark. And um, so he, he, did, he was incredible. He played piano for the, um, the, the gospel choir at Howard. He was getting his chops. He was a man. And so I walked in on their rehearsals, pretty much. They used to rehearse in the fine arts building down in, um, you know, in the bottom of the fine arts building with all the little sound rooms. The people who majored in music, they had all of the rooms with a piano in it, the soundproof. You go in there and practice or whatever. We used to occupy one of those rooms. And um, we would practice a cappella singing a song that Carl wrote the lyrics to called If I Ever Fall In Love. Then we would practice um, a cappella singing a song that we did called Baby, I'm Yours. Um, and then another song we was practicing called Comforter. All of these were like practice songs that we would sing to like, improve our chops. We, were, we never looked at them as singles or anything. We, were, we just designed them so we could hold our harmonies longer on this song, practice our ooh, our inflections, our crescendo. Those are practice songs. And so, um, you know, we sung at this big old talent show they have at Howard, man. It's like the Apollo. And all the football players are there, all the guys from New York are there, and they're ready to boot anything that touched the stage, just like the Apollo. And um, some of the dopest artists were there and got booed that night, just on GP. I think, I, I think it's because they came out first. But a, a rapper named Tracy Lee, who was my homeboy from Philly, who ended up getting signed to MCA. He was a signed artist, ended up coming out. That initially, he got booed. He did this dope song about dorm life called Creepin'. You're creepin', you're creeping every single weekend. Like, and he broke the whole dorm life down. It was dope. And then Eric Robinson. Everybody know who Eric Robinson is now? But back then, he was just this 18-year-old dude from New Jersey he wanted to sing this song that had just come out. I hadn't even heard the song yet. It was a song called Pretty Brown Eyes by this group that I hadn't heard of yet named Mint Condition. I thought Eric Robeson wrote that song when I first heard it because I hadn't heard it anywhere else. But he sung that in the time of the show, murdered it, that they booed him. And then you got Debbie Allen's niece, Sean Allen. They, she was a part of a group called Pure Soul that got signed. All these artists that performed that day weren't signed yet, but eventually that's how talented they were, but they got booed. So I just knew we was going to get booed. We came out last and, um, we sung, we did we was slick. We sung boys and man cover songs. Like, we came out to 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Then I was like, injection, fellas. Girls ain't crazy, you know what I'm saying? And then we started singing uh, a little bit, and we morphed into Please Don't Go. We did like a medley. We morphed into Please Don't Go Away. And, and you know, we killed it. We hadn't got booed yet. So, for me, that was the victory. We didn't get booed. We finished our set without getting booed, went to the back high fives everywhere because we didn't get booed we were hearing this applause turn into like an encore and it was like is that for us you know what I'm saying because these people boo people they don't definitely give people encore uh request. so we came back and we was like so what well, we going to sing for these people we had our little set we've been rehearsing and practicing but we don't got no other song like, hey what about our what about that song you know I packed song if I were fall in love you know I could talk all right let's try it you know we go back out there And we crank it up. And we kick it. And Carl comes in, the very first time. And then by the time we got to the hook, the chorus, the second time the chorus came around, the whole freaking crowd was singing the chorus as if the song had been on the radio or something for like three months already. And, And after we did that and we got like another standing ovation, we were just dumbfounded. On the stage right there, when the curtains closed, we turned to each other and was like, yo, I want to try to get a record deal. And that's pretty much how it started. We went to New York to try to get a record deal based on, a, you know, what people gave us as feedback from the, the live performance. And that was the only performance of, if I ever, of any performance that Shy had done before we got a record deal. We didn't, we weren't out doing all these shows and getting a little, little uh, people like liking us and get a little following. We didn't do none of that. It wasn't no social media back then. So it was just, we did that one song at that one spot that convinced us that we should get a deal. And we went up to New York, and you know we auditioned for Ruben Rodriguez, who was at Pendulum Electro Records. He was all on the telephone, smoking a cigarette while we were singing and stuff like that. And then we went to, uh, you know, we went to, and we went to all the record labels, and they dissed us, you know, they they just couldn't understand an acapella song without any music being something that people want to hear. Although Boys and Men had just put out the Cootie High Harmony, but ours was an original, like we wrote that one. I think DC Cameron wrote the Cootie High Harmony for the movie, and Boys and Men Freaked it did a remix, killed it. But we did a original a cappella piece, some dudes out of DC, you know, and um and once it got played, um, but WPGC we gave a tape to them at a softball game. You know, sometimes the radio station kinda of come to the neighborhood and like, you know, and, and, and um engage the neighborhood and play like a softball game, a radio station crew against the whoever the neighborhood puts up. It was in one of them situations. We came with a little cassette tape, they had a little portable studio, gave it to this dude named Paco Lopez. You know, now in our naivety, we thought the song was dope. We thought it was a hit and that it should blow up. So naive about the industry. Like, it don't matter if the thing is a hit. All the political channels and all those things have to be considered. But we had no consideration of that because we didn't know any better. But the song broke through and um, it got all these requests. And the rest was history. MCA realized that if we went to WPGC, which was a P1 program of reporter, which is like the main, like the big stations or P1s. They have little stations that follow their playlist. So if you get added to their playlist, you automatically have gotten added to maybe like five or six other stations around the country, which is going to impact your ability to start charting. So since we had WPGC and we hadn't had a record deal yet, we were actually in position to start charting on the billboard because of that. And um, so the label recognized that when we got played, and they were like, that's what got them to sign us. It wasn't really the song itself. They liked the song too, but it was the fact that we had already reached radio, and all they had to do was just piggyback off that effort and then expound upon it. And that's what happened. We ended up signing up with MCA Records, and, you know, the rest became history or whatever.
1: But that's how we got it. That's how
0: we started. It was like that kind of – that's how it happened.
1: Cool, cool. So speaking on our, speaking on Howard University and growing up in the DMV myself, what was your reaction the first time you heard Go-Go music and you tried out Ben's Chili Bowl?
0: Well – I heard go-go music when I got to, of course, DC, especially in the 90s. You know, with the junkyard and all of them, they're just out there getting get busy. Just and then you would go to Georgetown and the brothers be on the corner with the upside down paint um, buckets um, with the sticks. and you, That'd be your theme song walking through Georgetown. We was always coming from Howard getting on it with the P2 or something like that. And, and getting to Georgetown, you know, going shopping, meeting girls—you know, the whole line—and but on every corner was that, and so you knew that was go go. It's the Essence of it. And then you know, Rare Essence, like Spike Lee had a movie, uh, uh, *School Days*. Was it *Do the Right Thing*? One of them doing the butt was the big song um, coming out of it, and um, you know, was that um, that was what was that Rare Essence or E.U.? I can't. That was E.U. right? Yeah, yeah. E.U. came out with that, and um, yeah. That's how most of the world that didn't know about Go-Go found out that that was Go-Go. But we already knew. And then once I heard that beat pattern, it made me go back to my childhood to realize that I had already heard Go-Go. Because one of my favorite songs, I swear to God, it was a May Day. Damn, this time of the year when I was in fifth grade, it was like, you know, the, the school had this little event called May Day. And on May Day, everybody, like, dressed a certain way. And there was no classes that day. You just come and just play all day in school, all these activities. And the music that they, it was a theme. They put a theme for us. Um, and the theme was busting loose, and so the whole day while we were playing outside during May Day activities, you heard I feel like busting loose, uh, busting loose, give me the rich now. You know, it was like, and I was like, that was my favorite. I see, I know, hit it, that was that was go go. I didn't know the name of it, but whatever that was, I was loving that. So when I got reintroduced to it when I got to Howard, I was like, yo, oh, that's that, that's, that's that stuff, that's go go, you know. So I already liked Go-Go. I didn't even realize it was already like a preset. I was cable ready for Go-Go already. And Ben's Chili Bowl, it was two places that I um, grew to love iconically in D.C. Florida Avenue Grill and then Ben's Chili Bowl down that way by the hospital. And um, back then it was like a Roy Rogers close to that corner, like a, a Popeye's right over there. I think it was like a CVS across the street. None of that stuff is there now. <laughs> like, and, um, But Ben's Chili Bowl, like I've had the pleasure to talk to Mama Ben and stuff like that, i I do a show called Music City. You can go to YouTube and see it. Now, when I did the DMV area, I, I, um, I interviewed DJ Cool out of Ben Shilly Bowl, you know, because Mama Ben, you know, their whole, she's incredible, and her and her husband, what they started back then. They ingratiated themselves with the police force, really, and all the chief of police people always bring everybody to Ben, like, ben Shilly Bowl became an iconic place because of the Joe business acumen and community Savoir Faire that Mama Ben and her husband had back then, plus the product was incredible. Um, and they cared about your health and stuff like that. So Benz is just a special place. They even, I think they have one in the airport now um, in D.C. I'm not sure. I saw if they were building now. I'm not sure if they ever came through. But Benz yeah, is iconic. One,
1: and, uh, huh? Yeah, there's there's one in the airport. There's one in. Uh, they got an the airport. Yeah, there's one in the Roslyn. It's like two or three more in D.C. So you know, it's it's still a um, it's still a staple. But you know, being a D.M.V. native, gentrification,
0: um, gentrification has happened now, and so. Boom. Yeah. The thing about Ben's back when I was at college, man, at nighttime after the club or after anything, you can count on bins to be open. You come up in there and it'd be club part two because all the people that just, you know, they, they had bins now. You know what I mean? You got Ben's getting in and all the college crowd. And that was actually one of the places where the stigma of D.C., I mean, um, Howard youth back in those days, it was like we were kind of like seen as invaders. You know, we were Bama's to the people that was living there. Like, oh, those Bama's and Howard, they think they all that. But Benz was one of those places that allowed us to integrate, you know, the D.C. natives and Howard cats. And so some of the cool people from Howard that wasn't all stuck up and on that, who wasn't scared of their own people that were coming to the hood, we'd be at Benz politicking with D.C. cats. And then that's when we started realizing that, man, we got way more commonalities and differences, bro. And, you know, that's when we started forming, like, bonds with people in the community, finding what the studios were, record stuff through that. You know, it was just like a – Benz was iconic. for. Right? And so the same thing with Florida Avenue Grill, you know, and then there was also Georgia Avenue day. That was another big piece. I, I look forward to that every year. You know what I mean? With The vendors all up and down Georgia Avenue and the music. and It was right across from, you know, from Howard's on that strip, all the way up by that McDonald's, all the way up. And so I really had, like, that Howard experience in that particular time from 87 to 92 when I was at Howard and what D.C. was, you know, even though it was in the middle of the crack era, you know, like Rachel Edmonds and Alpo and all that stuff was going on and, you know, you know Wayne, you know Perry and Sean, Brandt, all that stuff. And, you know Trinidad boys, all that stuff was going on. You knew about it, and you saw it. You saw Poe riding up and down Georgia Ave with his jetters and stuff like you saw it going on. You know, but it was still like it was still authentic, man. It was just so authentic. And um, K Swiss, man, everybody was rocking their black K Swiss, their white K Swiss. It was just dope, man. Those times, I would never ever replace or forget. Like, that formed me. Like, yeah, like, Howard and that music in the air. And I appreciated that no matter where you went in the world, there was nothing as unique as, a, as DC. DC had its own music, for crying out loud. Like, Go-Go was nowhere else. DC was Go-Go. But Go-Go proliferated everywhere else. But it, it was, you could only go to DC to get it. The authentic, you know. And so I, I admired that. the whole swag was just its own thing. And I really, really just I loved that. I didn't know that that was going to be the case when I Got to D.C. and went to Howard. But when I got there and noticed it, I respected D.C. for that a lot. They were unique. They were chocolate city. It was. I, I enjoyed being there. I, I learned a lot. I grew a lot.
1: Who were some of your famous classmates in your graduating class?
0: Oh, wow. Well, Puffy, you know what I'm saying? The whole crew that was down with Bad Boy. You got Puffy. You got Harden Franz, the twins. You got Derek Angeletti that people know as D-Dot. You got Ron Lawrence. People know him as Honorat. And like he's D-Dot. I see D Dot. Think he, uh, he um Ron Lawrence did the hypnotize, and D Dot did the other big biggie, the big biggie record, the um what's the track? Oh, track is crazy. Uh, Benjamins, the Benjamins. Ha! Ah, Wanna you, this That's D Dot. So just to let you know who they are and stuff like that. And um, but then you got, you know, like like I said, you got um Babyface Assassin's what I call them, the drummer, um, Chris Dave, Chris Daddy Dave. We used to rehearse right around from each other, like, down there. He, he, if you look on the net and look up incredible drummers, he'll always pop up in the top five. Um, Chris Dave, and you had, this is a dude named Kevin Levi. He might not have caught fame fame, but this brother on the saxophone was unparalleled. I don't even want to hear it. Like, Kevin Levi, if you're listening, bruh, I hope you're somewhere playing that axe, playing that man. Um, who else? Um, Michelle Indigo. Cello, I think, was associated with Howard during that time. Um, then you had Two the Extreme. They were around there with um, Johnny Gill's brother and their, um, cousin, I think. And then um, the extra. Uh, uh, then you had countless like I think Taraji come from over there. Like you got countless. Howard has always been a celebrity studied place that you know people come out of. Like Debbie Allen and them came from Howard, and you know, and like some of those people I named at the talent show, like Tracy Lee, you know, um, Sean Allen, Pure Soul, Eric Robinson. We were all classmates and stuff like that. We were all just peeps and stuff. And then we end up some kind of way. And then it's a superstar attorney that came out of there named Matthew Middleton, Matt Middleton from New York. He was just a hardcore brother from New York, you know, played basketball with the Gauchos, traveling team. And when he came to Howard, we was just balling. But he ends up becoming like this incredible assistant district attorney from New York and a brother was like DMX's attorney for a long time, straight out of Howard. Now he's just a move maker and stuff like that. But Matthew Middleton, you can look him up. Oh man, you know, Howard's just full of just studs, man. Like pretty much everybody you know did something. He became some kind of dope dentist or attorney or and you know, we were just regular Joes to us, but to the world, you know. So yeah, man, Howard was prolific in terms of who it produced. And I'm missing so many more, I'm sure they're gonna be mad at me if they hear this, but you know. I'm sorry, y'all, I love y'all, y'all know I love y'all, but you know, y'all it's too many of y'all dope people
1: out there, man. So <laughs> So you told the story about how the group ended up signing with Gasoline Alley and MCA. And speaking on, let's, speak, let's go into the signature hit, If I Ever Fall in Love. When Carl wrote the song, did you have any idea the song would become as iconic as it did?
0: Yo, this is going to sound crazy, but like I said, in our naivete, we did. We thought this was the best thing since Life Cheese, and there was no reason why I shouldn't get a record deal and blow up on the charts. Like, we really thought that. Like, oh, yeah, this is it. We, we about to kill him. I mean, of course, we were so naive thinking that because the justification and what it was based on was just our feeling. It wasn't based on no industry knowledge of all the parameters and different things and the people who can block you, and we had no clue about none of that stuff, the stuff that really drives things. We just thought it was the dopest thing and sliced bread. It was original, and it was simple, but it was not basic, and we felt like, yeah, we about to kill them. And then we, 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 were, it was like we were fulfilling our pride. It was happening, and we thought it was supposed to happen like that. We weren't even like feeling like, yeah, you know, we felt like, like, we felt like, yeah, we didn't feel like, oh my God, look what's happening. We was like, yeah, of course, yeah, it's our turn. Like, we were just young and just ridiculous. (laughs) But, so, yeah, that's the answer to your question, man. We thought it was supposed to blow up. And we, you know, and we carried it like that even with the label. Like, we didn't come in, like, feeling like, you know, we should be happy to be here. Like, y'all should be happy to have this song that y'all about to get money off of. Like, we was feeling like that. Like, before we came to NCA, we did a showcase, Jack the Rapper, down in Atlanta. And uh, we was on stage with um, Sherelle and, like, that's who it was. It was us, Sherelle, and somebody else. But we were the group that hadn't been signed yet, that they gave a little love to perform, like a showcase. And I remember um, that group called Today, um, they were uh, with uh, Big Bub. Um, yeah. you really want him? Um, they, they wanted to buy the song from us after we performed. They were like, yo, that song. We, went to the, we had to use the bathroom after we performed. And then while we was in the bathroom, Big Bub them come in there like, yo, bro. That song, though, like, shut up, you know, because they were already established artists. We weren't signed or anything, but we knew we had something. So we was money hungry, which we were starving college students at the time, you know, we could have easily been like, oh, word, how much you want to, you know? But we knew that that song was going to be something, so we didn't sell it, thank God, you know what I mean? And uh, that's, that, that was our meal ticket to get put into this, to the industry, man, you uh, know, that's how it went down. We, we, we kind of knew it was going be to be a good song. And you know we did two versions pretty much at the same time. Like we did the acapella, but before the label would release the acapella, they wanted to make sure because they were still iffy on acapella music fitting on a regular program direct program directed playlist. Like it's acapella. Like you know how do you you know? And while we were like, hey, Kooly and Harmony, it's precedent set for it. Just roll with it. But they were like, well, do a music version. So then you know that's when we came and did the music version. And the music version, Carl wrote the original version. Like. Carl was a real extremely talented writer. I think he used to get his inspiration for, like, country music, which if you, even though I don't like country music, I respect it because the plots and the narratives and the things that they write about and how they're, they're excellent writers in country music. Like, right, country music writing is, like, some of the best writing. I just don't like the melodies and that twain, but the writing is still. And so Carl, I think, would listen to the writing and get under, angles about how you can attack love scenarios and stuff. And so he came with... um. You see it, and if I ever, you also see it in Come With Me, um, like his where he goes with, like, you know, he was a dope writer. And um so, um, are you there?
1: Yeah, sir.
0: Oh, my bad. You got um, signed. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Take it on
1: the
0: night with you, brother. And so, Carl, uh, we, 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 I forgot the question. I, mean, I got distracted by this, this thing that I thought the phone went off. I got all jostled. What'd you, what was up
1: No, we, we were talking about the um, song becoming a hit and becoming iconic. ah. Uh, you were telling me about how Carl. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, well Carl was just a- <laughs> lyrically. Carl wrote. Oh, I was about to tell you about the uh, a cappella versus the instrumental. That's what it was. So, Carl 100% wrote If I Ever Fall in Love lyrically. Like, that's his song. Like, Carl wrote that. Um, the arrangement, that's Carl, Mark, and Darnell. And musically speaking, um, Mark probably was the most advanced musician at that time in terms of just hearing. He had perfect pitch seventh and fifth, you know, you know harmony. Like, the boy is bad. And Darnell was, like, right there with that. You know what I'm saying? And then Darnell's voice was so pretty, like, he could sing his ass off. So he, um, he brought it to life with that hook. But the music, the, 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 um, the, the use of the Isaac Hayes sample, boom, boom, that's come from Isaac Hayes. Darnell put that in there. Like, Darnell and Mark did the remix version. The music version, that was Darnell and Mark. So Carl wrote the lyrics, but the musical feeling you get from that, if I ever fall in love music version, that's Darnell and Mark all day long. You know what I mean? Like, they were ill. And like I said, me, I'm a really good writer. But at that time, they, I'm, I was kind of, like, joining in the, their thing. They, they already had the La Costa Nostra musically already going on. They already had that thing. Um, I just kind of, like, joined it. So I was on the back end. If I ever come for all those songs were already written as practice songs before I joined the group. So I only joined because two of that. oh, I never told you. So the talent show was coming up. It was five of them and I had just been hanging out with Darnell because we reunited and uh, like I had gotten married but my dad had claimed me on his taxes so the financial aid that I, I had gotten, they, they snatched it from me and so I was just sitting in a semester and I couldn't go to school. Luckily I still had housing at Howard but during those times I I just hanged, I was just with Darnell all the time. I, I couldn't go to class. I had housing and I was working temp jobs but I, I didn't have jobs all the time so in those times where I didn't have a job, I would just go with Darnell to the fine arts building and just chill with him, Carl and Mark while they were rehearsing for this show that was coming up with two of the alphas that were part of them. Cause it was supposed to be five of them. Two of them quit. So now right before the show was about to happen, they had been practicing um, these five part harmony parts. And now it was only three of them. And D was like, yo, G man, you can sit here this whole time. I know, you know, the low notes. I mean, the, the baseline notes and stuff like that. Like, can you sing with us so we can get this full four part harmony? And I was like, all right, man, but, you know, I'm just coming about the nation and stuff like that. Like, I wouldn't perceive as being no R&B dude that's going on campus, you know, and stuff. I was more serious, and, but I love music. So, Plus, I did know the parts. I had learned the parts while I was sitting in me. And so that's, that's how I got into the group and stuff like that. So writing-wise, those songs, I didn't have really anything to do with those songs, and lyrically. I wasn't in the group yet when those songs were formed and stuff like that. So, yeah, you know, but... That's how, it, that's how that song, if I ever got put together, and that's how it blew up. You know,
1: so the album dropped right before Christmas 1992. I was in um, fifth grade going to Catholic school when the album dropped. But That's crazy. I remember the album, was a Big Bang. And, you know, I know it sold two million copies. The single yep, from the I album know, was yep. single Track, Comforter, and Baby, I'm Yours. Personally, I feel that Changes and Together Forever should have been singles. I guess what? Was as a single person,
0: when you say changes and together forever, guess who you're talking about in the group? Mark Gay. Mark Gay, together forever, Mark had that song in high school before he even came to college. He had already written that song when he was in Miami. He, arrangements, we shy had nothing to do with together forever except singing it. You know, Mark brought that to the group and it was saving. He was like, look, I got this song, fellas. I really want y'all to, you know what I'm saying? I really want y'all to, like, Darnell, I want you to sing the other verse because Mark already had his first verse. You know what Mark reminded me of? Mark reminded me of, remember the show that used to come on called Fame with Leroy yeah. on them? Like, Mark reminded me of that piano dude. Not, not in looks or anything. The dude was a white guy, with a Hispanic guy with curly hair, looked like Kenny G or somebody. But, I, but, the, but his spirit and who he was and how he musically could, that was Mark to me. Mark was that for us. He was totally, he grounded us in those ways. And know, um, I got I got big respect for Mark. Like we don't really talk and stuff that much no more and all that. But I, I got love for Mark a lot. You um, know, but um, and his talent, no matter what, you can't take it away. Like he changes with his baby too. Like he changes um, musically. That was Mark. We called him Cram. His name backwards or whatever. And together forever. And together forever was so beautiful. I I really felt like that should have been a single. Like, that was a wedding song that people would be requesting us to sing at weddings, still, to this day, together forever. It was like, yo,
1: how come y'all never gave that
0: look? You know, but it's yeah, a
1: lady. That was part of my wedding. Um, that was one of the songs that I was listening to, you know, driving myself to my um, wedding before I got, you know, probably jumped in the mm. room because it's such a beautiful song, but it's so simplistic, though. It's just, you know, singing. You could Yep. That was talent. He could
0: He was real simplistic, but never basic. But it, it was yeah. it was incredible, man. That boy was bad.
1: I mean, truth be told, it's almost like uh, the John Legend's song "All the Me" kind of stole a little bit of the pattern that Mark and you guys did on "Together Forever." Wow, you I never never tells
0: me to that. I gotta listen to that. Those me- that melody pattern. I would be surprised <laughs> though, because John Legend is a pianist, and Mark was the same thing. And Mark wasn't trained as a pianist. He taught him. Like he, that's his style that he learned. His own, you know. And um, he would put, like, certain fingering. You should see his fingering. Like, when you play, it's not normal. Like, you should see it. And um, the chords he would put together, the notes that he would invert. Or, it'd be real subtle, but it would show up in the music. Like, the perfect, perfect, perfect showcase of Mark musically was um, the song During the Storm, like, on, on Blackface album. Like, he, that was something that he put together. As He didn't want it to be a single. We didn't, that was just supposed to be an artistic piece. It had movements and everything. It had sections. And, but anyway, um, I agree with you on that album, like, um, we had to fight the label, believe it or not. Like, they put out If I Ever. The second song they wanted to put out is Baby, I'm Yours, the second single. They wanted that to be the second single rather. But the way that we end up doing Baby, I'm Yours, because they didn't trust us at first to do our own music when we got signed. They wanted, and, and two, they wanted us to do whatever we were going to do album on They wanted it to be done within two weeks so they can start selling an album worth $20 rather than just selling If I Ever the single for, what, $5 or whatever it was. So they put a lot of pressure on us to just be done in two weeks. So they put us with all these people at first. These producers all up in Hollywood Hill. We were traveling all around to get to these people's houses. And we ended up at this one guy's house. His name was David Way. And he produced um, Kissing Game for High Five, if you remember that, the Tony Thompson, The Kissing Game. I like yeah. the way. Yeah, Kissing Game, and I, which I love that song. I love the, the whole thing. But then David Way took what we had for Baby, I'm Yours, and if you really listen to Baby, I'm Yours, all that is is Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye. That's all that is, if you listen to it just with the piano. <laughs> Matter of fact, in the show, sometimes when we had our band with us, we would break off, and in the middle of singing Baby, I'm Yours, we would segue into a little vamp of Let's Get It On and come back to because it was the same chords, exact same chord. So David Way got to it. Man he airbrushed that thing so much you couldn't even hear a percussion instrument in there and the instruments were just just like oh, wispy wind, they wouldn't even know soul in it no more man, I was so like oh my god so um, we complained enough to the, labels that they, the label that they were like well you guys we're going to let y'all do this but I need to create something now like boom. so um, we did all our songs and when the songs were coming out they wanted Baby I'm Yours to still be second we were like yo black radio because oh that's the other thing we were dealing with our label, Gasly Alley, who the, man, the the president, Randy Phillips, a big, big, big deal in the industry. I mean, he's... originally, though, he was Rod Stewart's manager back in Rod Stewart's heyday. That's who was his manager, though, that whole time. So his idea of music, like, they didn't have black acts on Gasly Alley before, you know. They, they had this group that did this song called Hell of a Hell of a... Something like Brotherhood Creed or something like that. But it wasn't nothing like us, like a singing, singing group, like a group. And um, they didn't understand. So they didn't put us in black radio. Black radio was mad at us thinking it was us not wanting to come to them. We were some bougie Howard kids or something that was scared to come to black. They thought it was in our control. We were just some young kids that got signed. And the first thing you know, we was overseas on a promo tour at the behest of the label. We didn't know any better, you know, but we were getting blamed by black radio. So when we came back to the United States, we realized that, oh, wait a minute, black radio is mad at us. We can't afford that. You know what I'm saying? And Silk, who had came out pretty much the same time as us, on the key Sweat's to the list, they knew to go to black radio and and just pimp it all the way out. We weren't, so when when we realized that, and we realized they wanted to put out Baby I'm Yours, which it was poppy compared to how we originally did it acapella. They had that, I hated that to be honest with you. But we um you know fans loved it, and we did the video at Howard University, so people loved it. But that song. We told the label, look, man, if you put that out, you're going to alienate our audience, man. You got to at least give us a chance to kind of like, you know, y'all already put us out and then let us do black radio. They hating on us. So, and then y'all putting this pop song out second. Why don't you hold up and let's put that out third. Let us put a black song out. Because the black crowd was loving comforter. They was like feeling comforter. You go in the hood, yo, that comforter joint, man, that comforter joint. So the label thought we were stupid. They said that, look, if you put this song out, it's not going to get, it's not going to cross over. It's not going to get pop radio. It's not going to sell. Y'all not going to sell. And we um, are like, nah, there's too many people telling us they love it. We get the feedback is too ill. And we're a human commodity. we in the streets. You know, we're, we're the product, and we happen to be human beings that can hear people tell us what they like. So they put it out thinking that they were going to show us who was boss. They didn't put any money behind confidence. They did a real cheap video for under $100,000. And um, they put the song out without any real supports behind it because they wanted the life of it to be short so they can go ahead and put Baby, I'm Yours out and then put all their money and resources behind that and blow it up to prove what's wrong. Well, it didn't happen that way. They put Comforter out, and it just, just like all of our stuff, it had like a viral kind of like component to it. People just liked it, and just on the strength of it being a a dope song that they like, it started spreading that way, and it really wasn't a byproduct of how radio was doing. And so that actually pushed radio to play, and then it became, you know, it went gold on this initial outing without any monetary support from the label at all except for the video. So then, they put Baby I'm Yours out quickly to try to shut us up because organically Comforter went gold. go. If they had put money behind Comforter, it probably wouldn't be been platinum. So they put Baby I'm Yours out after Comforter. Now, Baby I'm Yours is copy. And it's a nice song. It's a nice song. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? I like it. But it was, you know, I liked it when it was, it was piano and it really sounded like let's get it on. Like that them chords was coming out with them keys and without all that, all, without all that. So they put that out. They had to really go in their pockets and hit the program directors off to get that added to stations and played in regular rotation and stuff like that. And they made it to the top ten, you know, like Comforter and forever, but it didn't, it didn't do – they had way more money behind it than Comforter did, and it did pretty much the same numbers. So they couldn't really tell us, like, I told you so and nothing like that. And we finagled three singles out of the deal because I'm sure – if they had to put Baby, I'm Yours out, they would have never put Comforter out. You know what I mean? So that was a plus for us. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and that blew me up kind of because Comforter, I was kind of like the lead man in that video. And, um, you know, they kind of made, like, Garfield from Shabby like a thing, I think, a little bit more than it would have been. So that was kind of cool. You know, that was kind of cool.
1: Yeah, man, you're giving all this knowledge, man. Like I said, I'm just, I'm just sitting here smiling with the history and knowledge you're giving me. All right, so oh, speaking yeah, on Baby, yeah. I'm Yours. You mentioned that the video was shot on Howard's campus, which which it was. I I revisited the video on um Sunday, showed it to my wife and um What <laughs> you know, first thing first thing the missus brings up is like Bruno Mars that's where he got that from I'm like, yeah, Bruno Mars samples
0: ABM. Yeah, that's on straight up and down. Yeah, straight up and down,
1: yep. yep. So speaking on the video, how fun was the shoot the video with your alma mater and how many oh, groupies man. tried to find their way on on the video set? Well, it was, you know, it was,
0: it was, I'm going to tell you, like, well, first of all, since you mentioned Bruno Mars, I got to, like, digress for a half a second, but don't let me lose my train of thought. I just, I love Bruno Mars, bro. Like, hey, Bruno's one, of my favorite, one of my favorite vocalists, hands down. I don't even think the boy get enough credit, to be honest with you. Even though when you hear him, you can't help but give him credit, but he don't ever pop up when you start talking about singers in the industry. They always go somewhere else. Man, Bruno Mars is seen people under the table. Stop playing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and his songs. Man, his songs be like soulful hits, man. Even if they pop, they still be soulful hits. And T-Pain helping him write and doing stuff like that don't hurt it at all, because T-Pain is is an incredible writer. And so I just, I love Bruno. I just had to put that out there. And I was honored that he felt like Shy was, you know, one of those iconic groups enough to, like, incorporate straight up, baby, I'm yours, straight up and down. He put it in you. But back to the video, you know, we felt like we had a, Internally, like we were from Howard, so we were kind of smart as even as young men, and we were aware of what was happening to us. It was like musical gentrification, if you will, back in the day, where they were trying to keep us from, you know, really serving and being in our community strong. They were trying to kind of trying to make our community be the pop community, and we weren't made like that. So we were like, you know what, what could do it? Like, if they're gonna put our baby on yours with this poppy seal with a let's at least go to Howard, let's go to an iconic place where black and brown people are surrounding us to legitimate that that's who we, our roots is beyond dispute. And also as a kind of like a, you know, public service announcement, Hey, come to Howard. It's a dope school. You know, it's like you're we advertising Howard too. And that was a way of us giving back. Like let's do the video at Howard. We can, you know, big up Howard, you know, and, and promote it. Um, and us being products from it. And also, you know, we, we can be solidify that, Hey, we are, we come from a black college. We ain't just some, we ain't out here trying to be pop trust. And um, you know, and we come from a black college in tradition of like the Donny Hathaways and people who went there, who came through there. So um, we got this dope director. Uh, I can't never remember the brother's name. He, he had like an African black last name. M. 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 Fume I messed his name up, man. Coolest brother ever. He gave us all 3 high tech groups and stuff like that. He did a uh a little documentary. I can I can't find it now. But as we were doing a video, he was also doing like this behind the scenes thing. Um. Like shy, like a retrospective of shy from where we had come so far to then and getting fans' reactions of us, and anyway, but baby, I'm yours. We didn't even come in with the uh we didn't do any casting previous to uh, prior to us coming to Howard. We felt like you know what if we go to Howard and do a video, there is no way we're gonna go ask some modeling agency for some Z cars and pick girls there's no there's no way we're doing that coming to Howard, so we went back to Howard and we were we were recently removed from Howard, so we didn't have groupies per se. Because um, people still knew us. It. it was just Garfield, Darnell, Mark, and Carl who just, just got a record deal. Now, people were like, I'm sure there were some people who kind of had an awestruck kind of thing. Like anybody who is in your midst to just all of a sudden emerge and rise to some kind of prominent thing, there's like some admiration, like, oh, my God, this dude a star. But at the core of it, once they slapped themselves in the face a couple of times, they were like, but that's G, though. You know what I'm saying? So then it, came, it always brought it back down to, that's Mark. That's G. Oh, that's his D. That's Carl. You know, so when we came back, it had that feel. But we peru- we went through the campus, and we actually asked women um, that we knew. Like, uh, Carl um, was paired up with Ananda Lewis, who was in her own right. You know, she, be, she like MTV, had her own talk. Ananda Lewis is woman. She was Carl's love interest in, in the video. And then you had, um, uh, 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 oh, she uh, uh, geez, uh, uh, uh Real beautiful lady that Darnell was paired up with, man. She she was big in the industry too, still is. Capital Records, um Joy. I couldn't think of that. What's Joy's last name? Um can't think of her last name.
1: What's Joy's last name.
0: Anyway, Joy, she became she was Darnell's love interest. And then Mark's love interest, even though she wasn't some famous person or anything like that, that's who he's married to now. That's who we end up thirty years later bumping back into and then they got married. You know what I mean? Like dope story. And then me, my love interest was a girl named Kenya, who at the time I just had a mad crush on her the whole time I was at Howard, and I just felt like that was my big opportunity to be like, now I got a little, little status Maybe I can, you know, persuade her to be in a video with me. <laughs> so and she said, yeah, she obliged and everything you know, you know, and stuff like that. And, you know, we dated for a little while after that. Like, you know, she's a beautiful brown-skinned girl. And then also at the same time, like, during those times, you know, the video game was they always wanted to have like exotic, like other others, like the other category. You couldn't really, like they weren't like ethnic specific kind of like they were like just some lighter complected woman with big hair or something. or You know, and I, I my dad is a real dark skinned guy and my mom is a real light skinned woman. You know, you always see that pairing or whatever, but i never had yeah. an affinity towards light or dark people. Like I never, I was naive, like colorism definitely exists. And I was so naive because my parents were both extremes of the spectrum, so I never even thought about that kind of stuff. And here I am. I guess I'm light nice skinned I got curly hair or whatever. But I never – I don't know. I was naive. I, I was not self-aware when it came to colorism or whatever. But I, when I started seeing how real it was, that made me even more want to put Kenya in, in our video because she was a real pretty brown-skinned girl. And during that time, you know, they were kind of like – TV and, and our images, they were kind of like trying to keep the brown skin – the melanated people from being in positions of beauty in that kind of way. So I was like, man, you know what? And so if you go to the video called Yours, the acapella we did, um, we shot that in New York, and I refused. I was kind of, I was kind of the guy that picked the, you know, the, the styling and the guy out of the group. I was the guy that kind of styled us and the guy that also would pick like the girls in the video and stuff like that. So that video, I was like, I don't want a whole bunch of women and all that. And I don't want all that and all that. I want to pick an elegant brown skin. Elegant beauty that is not typically a typical look for standard of beauty, but she's beautiful. You can't take that away from her. You can, she's so elegant and classy. And I found that model, if you go to the yours video, and she's the only woman in the video. And um, you know, and it's simple, it's tasteful, you know what I mean? And she's just so elegant and she was just so beautiful to me, like for real, you know, and stuff like that. And she was, she was even shocked that I picked her for the video. She was like, wow, you, you know, I was like, what? You know, um, and, but I, I was conscious during that time about making sure that the brown-skinned women were, were, were uh, represented because I, I felt like I don't want to be one of those cookie-cutter, you know, just image-wise. That It meant something to me and stuff like that. So the images we put out in our know, video. But that's, what, that's first, how that, that happened.
1: So who were some of the artists that you all toured with during the album during the first album's commercial run? And did you all ever find yourself in a beef or a friendly competition with other groups at the time?
0: For any competition, definitely. I think we were, like, when we jumped into the industry, um, that it, like, love. It was, it was like a love thing. Like, all the groups, because we were one of ones, like, nobody sounded like another group, even though we were all basically singing harmony and, you know, singing group stuff. They call us boy bands, but the, really the only band back then was Mint Condition. They were, we were all singing Thank groups. Mint Condition. Condition was a band. <laughs> you know, we, we, we yeah. weren't, we didn't have it like Mint Condition. They was, that was my favorite group, you know, whatever. But anyway, let me go back. Um, I've got the question, man. You maybe think about making dish, and I start thinking about their hits. What you,
1: would <laughs> you say? Yeah, just um, and speaking to everybody that I've interviewed, you know, from 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 the nineties R and B Day, they all said that um, it really was that it was a um, oh the beef. You know, I was asking the about the beef. Se, where you guys were like fist fighting. but It was just that. It was from the competition because you had to bring your A in because everybody mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. what they were doing. So now you now had me to bring about our first show?
0: I'm sorry, I didn't even cut you off, but you just brought me back to that spirit just went over me because I remember our first freaking show was in Miami. It was this hole in the wall and it was Shy, a brand new Shy that nobody even had nobody had even seen Shy yet to know what he looked like. A brand new silk. And a brand new H town, even though they came from Houston, Luke from Miami was the one who put them on. So yeah, H town, Silk and Shy doing this show. We were brand spanking newest artists, and boy, let me tell you something. We knew who was on the show. We knew they saw me. We, we knew they was like little cheese, a problem boy. You know what I'm saying? And Dino was a problem boy. You know what I'm saying? So we had to come out there and get busy. You know what I mean? But um and all of us had bona fide hits for that time. Like wasn't nobody outshining and nobody hit. Like you had your hit, we got our hit, like you, and everybody had the confidence and the swag of knowing that if all else fails, we know that this hit is gonna be the C. So we confident, we can let our thing swing and go on stage and kill it. And so that show was probably the dopest show I ever heard or been a part of. And it wasn't even and then we ultimately those those other groups, we were all put on a tour together, the Budweiser Wild Superfest. And with the addition of yep. um, Coco on them for SWV, Jade. So it was like J, they would open, it would be J, SWV, Shy, Silk, H Town. And then it would differ in terms of who closed the show. Sometimes it would be like um, BBD. Sometimes it would be Naughty by Nature, believe it or not. Sometimes it would be LL on that show. Um, but it was like, you know, we did two stints of the Budweiser Superfest with those artists. And it was because we were in such close quarters, like one time my tour bus broke down. Guess who rescued us? Um, H-Town pulled up behind us, and I ended up riding on H-Town bus to the whole few cities until our bus got fixed. So it was love. Like, we put them in there to do that if we had B. You know what I mean? And and Dino sat there and schooled me all night. We had a conversation for, like, three, four hours after the show about um, his dad teaching him singing techniques, like, about him curving his mouth to the side. You know, When we make good love to get that full ove out. he was like, I curved my mouth to decide to get that O out. I was like, Oh yeah, you do. you, do. you know. He was one of them kind of. And then when he passed away, I, I just I always remembered that night when you know when he was telling me about how he his technical stuff. And I was like, I, I never would have guessed that and stuff like that. But you know, nah, we was we cool with everybody, man. Yeah, Portrait. and, and mm. that's what it was. Uh, that's what
1: it was back then. Like everybody that I talked, they said like you know, like I was saying earlier it was just friendly competition because you might come out and let's say that before shy goes on, you might see a, um, a portrait, you know, do they thing? You're like, damn it, man. I like, need to go back there and come a little bit, you know, come a little bit tighter. But at the end of the day, you know, it, it was all still, still love because everybody had their own lane. Everybody has their, you know, fan base. Cause I mean, the nineties, man, I don't think we'll ever get that again in R and B cause it was right. a great time to survive. And plus, right. fan base
0: wise, the the artists together, I, like Shy, like me, I was part of Silk's fan base because I was like, yeah, I was, I got signed to a record deal, and I'm out here doing performances and stuff, and I'm singing with my peers called Silk. But just as a music guy, like I, I, I like R&B too, right? I just happen been sing in a group, but Silk has some heat. Like, oh man, please let me oh, yeah. find it. You know what I'm saying? Some of the nights that I had some little love interest, you know what I mean? You better believe I'm putting on some, let me lick you up. (laughs) Look, B hey man, and we would even watch each other's performances during the show. We wouldn't just go home or nothing like that or go back to, I was curious to see how Silk was going to rock this crowd tonight, because Silk and SWB shared a band on the tour, and their band was freaking ridiculous, B. It was like, oh my god. It was so soulful, and our band was incredible, so we all stuck around and saw each other rock all the time and, and learn from each other too and stuff like that, like stage command and different things.
1: Vocally, um, little G don't get enough credit from Woo! from the main. You know, that boy, he's cool with it. Yeah, I he's cool like, with it,
0: know,
1: man. The R and B community, like you know, we give him a ton of love, but um, I've seen YouTube videos and interviews where dudes talk about like, you know, how he can sing opera, he can sing country. He just he's he's one of those things that can sing anything. The and boy is. Sounds,
0: the, the boy is gifted, man.
1: The
0: boy is gifted, and you knew that from day one. Like it didn't even take no. like, again, no, it wasn't even. It was like immediately, So his mouth opened. it was like, "Uh oh, <laughs> oh shit, we got a problem." But <laughs> well, one of the best guys I know, like one, like us and Silk are tight to this day. You know, because we still do shows together. Like all of us still, we still perform together. It never stopped. We still be out there when we, you know, come to the city. Be Silk, Shy, you know, the '90s, because the '90s became like sexy again or something like that. But um, yeah. good guys, man. Like I, I, I got mad love for Them dudes get us work, like they were mentioning us to promoters if they got a gig or something like that. And they be like, you know what? I know Shy probably ain't got no shows right now, and I know what this promoter really looking for. They'll be like, look, man, don't y'all give Garfield or Darnell a call, them boys ask for they price, you know, they they you can afford them, bring them in, and make the show fat. They, they look out for us. We look out for them. It's just, you know, family, man. We, don't, we literally have grown up together. I'm 50 years old now, and we, we've been rocking with them dudes since we were like 23 years old. So that's family, man. We grew up together, man. There's, you know, all of us. H-Town. Like right now, I live in Houston. Me, um, G.I., Shazam, I'm doing a song. As a matter of fact, I just got through recording a song with, with Shazam. He's about to do a little project, the H-Town project. They're about to do a little project. And I did a little joint with them called Body Right, And I sung a verse, you know what I'm saying? And I think he teamed up with a couple of other 90s groups and stuff like that. That should be coming out soon, you know, when, when it gets together. We're going to do some, a video for it and stuff. But, yeah, we poly with each other, man, because we, we truly genuinely love each other, respect each other. Shazam, you know, going through all he did with his brother, man, and people may saying, I'm saying, that you can't do it, you can't keep going, you know what I'm saying? You don't sing like your brother. Man, look, that boy went and developed his chops even more and yeah. business acumen, and, man, look, that boy be out there getting it, man. And I'm proud of him, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, I, you know, it's love. It's pretty much love, man. I don't have no ill, Ill feelings for nobody in our I, in I, in I, um, time period, stuff like that. So
1: around 1993, the group made a legendary legendary appearance on Family Matters. And from time to time, ah! watching the show, the group's name dropped on the show. How did y'all end up making a cameo on Family Matters?
0: You, bro, you know what? I really don't remember how the hell we got on Family Matters. <laughs> All I remember is just that we were on there with Urkel playing ball in between scenes. They had a little basketball hoop, and your boy got yeah. a game. So, you know, and mm-hmm. a little yeah. fact about me, in high school, my, um, my my team, you know, Brockton High School is where I went to school, in Brockton, Massachusetts, where Rocky Marciano and Marvin Hagler come from or whatever. We were called the boxers our, our mascot. And my senior year we were ranked number twenty second in the nation by USA Today. Like when you go look up the you know, USA Today stuff. Twenty second or twenty fifth. He was in the top twenty five. And um I I played ball, you know, I I was I had division one scholarship offers and stuff in different schools, but not, but Howard was not one of those schools offering me a scholarship offer. So and I wanted to come to Howard so bad. So I, I kinda just but I was a ball player, you know what I mean? I played ball, I, I was AAU, um, you know, I was a shooting guard. I was six two, you know, back in, in um, when I first got um, my senior year in high school, six two one eighty five, you know what I'm saying? Um, and so when my Earth was balling and stuff, I was like, What? You know what I'm saying? He was back there balling. And so that was just so much fun meeting him and, you know, being around the whole crew on a low, 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 low. I think I had a crush on Laura. You know what I'm saying? But I ain't I ain't stepped to her nothing like that. I wasn't you know, I wasn't trying to But um it was just dope to be around that man. It was just like fun. And then to see his stupid behind doing what he ended up doing in the episode. <laughs> he's stupid. Uh, but I think it was the casting. I think they actually reached out to Shy, or maybe one of them from the show wanted Shy to be represented. It might have been him. Um, So we were on there. We were also on, um, what is it, Out All Night or whatever, with the Debbie Allen, LL Crew like that show. It was us and Brownstone. It was like a Christmas special, and then we kind of like did some Christmassy stuff on on, on Out All Night or whatever it was called. We did that. And then I I was on Sequest, Um, and that was crazy because – are you going to ask me about that? Bad. Yeah, I, the gun.
1: I saw the um when I, when I was doing my research, you know, I saw the IMBD credit, yeah. and I'm like, you know, them So I'm not I'm not going to ask him, but you brought it up. So how was it being on um? C-Quest? Man, that was
0: incredible. Are you kidding me? Look, this is how it happened. Now I had no aspirations to be you no know, actor or anything like that, and they wanted um we had like some behind the scenes that I labeled the relationships with the the you know MCA is MCA, so Universal was the set that Sequest, you know. So we were in the loop, so to speak, and they needed a song from one of the MCA's artists for a love scene for the love interest of um, Jonathan Brandis, who committed suicide, rest in peace, little brother. And I did a scene with him, but um, they, they got Baby I'm Yours. They wanted you know, Baby I'm Yours to be the, the background music to the little scene or whatever. So when they brought us to the set, and the set was incredible, and it was executive produced by Steven Spielberg, you know what I'm saying? Um. And it was like a million dollars an episode to film that doggone thing, man. It was crazy. The set was crazy. They had a mechanical dolphin that was, like, it was incredible. So we were there listening to a watching sequence being taped as a kind of like a, you know, a prize for them selecting our song. They wanted us to come and see it being executed and stuff. Like, that. So we got to be on set. And, and so while we were on set, you know, my look or whatever, like, I, you know, some people don't think I'm black or whatever because I got curly hair and I'm kind of, like, red brown. Um, the people came up to me and was like, look, um, have you done any acting? And I'm like, oh, shoot. Now, I already missed out on one opportunity because I was trying to be so group centric and not, you know, be loyal. Like, I remember this lady came up to me and asked me, um, had I ever done any modeling? And she was from Elite Modeling Agency. And she wanted, like, and I was like, nah, I'm cool because I didn't want to, like, early on in the career, I didn't want to be, like, out there some dope and they looked in that, looking at shy, just, just Garfield. I didn't want that. Like, I wanted us to. So I dissed that one. But then this person came up to me and asked me if I'd done any acting. Now, I hadn't done Jack Zero acting. But, of course, you know what I said. I was like, yeah. <laughs> and they were like, you know, like, okay, okay. And so they were like, look, there's a part for one of our episodes for this guy who's Portuguese, you know. Um, and, you know, the Portugal and Cape Verdeans coming from Massachusetts, you know, Portuguese and Cape Verdeans are prolific there. And, they, you know, it's off the coast of Africa, like the Cabo Verde Islands right underneath, like, France and to the left of um, Africa, up top by um, Morocco and all that up in the tip, you know, West Africa. So the people are light-skinned, curly-haired-looking people. You know what I mean? They look like light-skinned black people, but don't tell them that. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? That's just like a Puerto Rican getting called a Mexican or vice versa. They didn't want to hear that. And so, um, But anyway, they they like my look, and they said I fit this part for this guy named Malik. Now, already I'm liking it because the dude's name is Malik, and it's not like – G-Money or something like that. Like, I'm, It's got some integrity to it to me because Malik means um, teacher or master. And, um, and so I was like, okay. like If you pronounce it Malik, it means one thing. If you pronounce it Malik, it means the other thing. So um, I was feeling that. It was name but meaning. And he was a savior. He was a person that was like, in the favelas, um, which is true in these countries um, where there's a lot of tourism and a lot of poverty. A lot of the young kids are pickpockets and stuff when people come. And so they wanted to rid the population of the little young black boy. So this dude, Malik snatched them up along with the, one of the white ladies who came to the island on the low. That was daughter of one of the people from Sequest. We stole a submarine, we put all the kids in the submarine and was high killing it away from the um, island to save the, the, the little kids from being killed by the military. And, you know, and I had a big part of playing and blah, blah, blah. And I actually, in that episode, I was like, I had a very main part. It was like, I was key to the plot. So anyway, I filmed that and did that. And, um, I got to see how it goes, and, and I got to meet um, all these – Don Franklin, who looks exactly exact, – I've never seen somebody look so much like somebody else, but Don Franklin looking just like your boy um, Blair Underwood. Blair Underwood and Don Franklin, I swear to goodness, man, them dudes are twins. So when I first walked on set, I thought that was Blair Underwood, <laughs> but it was Don Franklin. And then I got to work with Roy Scheider to do some Jaws, you know, the, um, the main dude from Jaws, the movie Jaws. And so, you know, just being around that and getting little acting tips. And then I had to learn some Portuguese um, to, to ask the kids if they wanted some ice cream. Um, de you know what I'm mean? saying? I had to learn a little. So I had a coach teaching Portuguese between scenes. It was dope, man. I felt like a star for the day. I had my own trailer, you know what I mean? So that was a good experience. And, and you know, I did pretty – I quit it myself pretty well having had no experience to the point to where a couple of people wanted me to keep going and they, they were willing to coach me. Um, and stuff like that. Um, Kim Fields, we were cool with Kim Fields. Her mom was a, a coach and stuff. And they, you know, Kim was like, "Hey, you should, you know, get with my mom and stuff." But I just, you know, I didn't really want to be an actor. I did it because it was something that I was I had uh, access to. And of course, I you know I wanted to do that in my life once. But acting, I got so much respect for because I can I can never not be me. So those roles where people stretch themselves to be just extra vulnerable and just totally become some other thing and they, you know, they ain't worried about looking crazy. I'm too worried about looking crazy, man. I can't be looking, I can't let it go so much, man. I can't flip myself into just some old, you know, like Holly Berry could make herself be this prostitute for this role and really be a prostitute. I can't, I can't, I can't yeah. make my mind let me do that. You know what I'm saying? So I, I'll be whack as an actor because I'll be too one-dimensional. I'll be like the same dude in every movie, you know what I mean? And I recognize <laughs> that. So, I, you know, I wasn't going to act, you know what I mean? I just, I'm not a good actor, you know. But I did pretty good in that little episode and stuff like that, and, um, and I tried out. I, I was with an agency. I was with a creative artist agency for a little while. They were sending me sides, and I popped up at a Martin Lawrence reading. Comedy is harder than anything you can try to do because of timing and stuff, and then, you know, you just you got to just either have that or not. I I, I'm not no comedian, man. I don't have that timing like that. I don't, my voice projection, and, and that was, I don't have that, you know what I mean? So I kind of like, ah, I'm cool, I'm cool, I'm cool. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But, uh, but I big ups and respect to everybody who did. But so, um, yeah, that's how we got into um, that's how we got into Sequest and stuff like that. I mean, that's how I got to be in Sequest is through our music. So
1: 1995, the group releases its second album, the vastly underrated Blackface. Blackface. The second album, yeah. A single, the place where you belong, come with me, and I don't want to be alone. There were also some deep. Did the remix, the remix and of Jay Z, man? Yeah, we're getting to that. That's one of the next. Okay. Questions. Okay. Do you feel like they would drop the ball from a from a promotional point with the second album?
0: Oh yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure, for sure, for sure. Um, you know,
1: like, I don't know what it is with the second albums. With you know, on um, Gaston Alley and MCA. Yesterday, yeah. I interviewed that Randy and um, Jermaine from To the Extreme, and their second album was vicious. I mean, that was that was some serious grown man R and B, and like with you guys on the mm-hmm. second album. You guys had grown so much vocally, and just what you guys were talking about and how you were coming across, it's nothing like the first album. If you guys didn't try to repeat the formula on the first album, you guys were actually showing off your vocals, you know, singing better, and really... Yeah. So MCA really dropped the ball on that second album because it's neat yeah. on that second album, especially Mr. Turn You Out.
0: Yeah, that should have been a single. That's I was gonna say that to you. Like I felt like "Mr. Turn You Out" probably could have been our lead-off single on a real, 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 or at least coming out to come with me or something like that. Cause that song was banging, man. Like, woo. But um, but um, the, the second album was better for both of us because they didn't. We didn't have to rush to do it. We literally took almost a whole year to record "Blackface," and we had a ch- the first album was two weeks. So we said a formula. We didn't repeat the formula. We had no formula for the first album, man. It was like, y'all better get in there and make something so y'all can give it to the label so they can put an album out instead of just a single <laughs> and make $20. So that's all the first album was, was just a collection of songs that we felt would represent us enough. Um, but the second album, we were like, okay, let's be artists now. Let's try to, like, craft a a theme and, and really go there and stuff like that. So we, we And the label just didn't like our album because it was different from the first album, and it was it was – brothers making music. They really couldn't relate. Um, they didn't have any A&Rs that could really relate to what we were producing or putting out uh, in the name of Black. Edgar Bronfman from Seagrams had just bought the label, and um, it was just going in a different direction. So the Black Music Department had, like, massive turnover. So there was never one uh, team, uh, executive team on the Black Music side that would be consistently there enough doing the project to really put their fingertip on it. Like, they kept getting fired. New one would come in, and they would be even more – Kind of like whitewashed, they did. They ear what, and so we suffered from that. We suffered that, and um, you know, uh, we didn't have any real direction in that way, except for our internal direction. So nobody politically aligned themselves with our album, like an A and R. You know, like the A and R attaches to your album and they, are with you, and do, then they'll have a vested interest in making sure the label, you know. But we didn't have that political piece. Matter of fact, Gasoline Alley. Um, um, which was always a joint venture with MCA, our second album was more on directly on MCA, to, believe, uh, to tell you the truth, their resources. And they had Mary J. Blige and all these other artists and coming out with stuff that was more prioritized in our piece. And then they and they didn't understand our music the second time around. They didn't really get it, you know, the growth. Um, because that's who we really were. The second album was who we really were. The first album was a collection of songs from these young dudes that just happened to put some songs together that happened to appeal to people. But the second album was forethought and stuff like that. And um, you know, they just like Mr. Turn You Out and that could have been a gosh, man, that was bang. That could, if we had a video for that, that would have been just monstrous. But um and then, you know, yeah. I don't wanna be alone.
1: Yeah. And the single you days, know Turning You Out That was the secret weapon on you know on my little mixes they used to make back, back in my singles. Yeah. Now once again <laughs> I gotta
0: give I gotta give credit where it's due. Carl Martin, Carl Martin wrote that. Like, the lyrics, that's Carl's lyrics. And um, and then musically, it's this dude named Pocket and this dude named Brew and all of them. I think that they were the house musicians that got up on there and got busy and killed that, you know what I mean, um, musically. Um, Carl told us he did it, but, you know what I mean? But musically, uh, we had some ill like cats that was in our corner that played their butts off all over L.A., just these dope musicians that were down to, like, collab with us, Fish and Fishbone. Uh, it was just a whole bunch of stuff, man. Um, but Mr. You I came out so cool. And um, the label just didn't, I don't know, the A&Rs, they didn't really, they wasn't feeling us. When we got to NCA, they really wasn't feeling us, man. And It just kind of ended up, you know, kind of going from there. And I remember being in meetings because we called out, well, I named the album Blackface. That was my doing. And because, um, you know, coming from Howard, I felt like a social responsibility. And I remember the whole Al Jolson era of blackface to attack the black male image into, you know, in a pejorative way and make it, you know, with the big lips, the black charcoal on the face, the white dudes with the white lips and they acting like black dudes, you know. So I wanted to invert that. And slickly, coming from NCA, that was responsible for, put, for putting so many of those pejorative images out, slickly, coming from Howard, I felt a responsibility to kind of politically do something to kind of like have some pushback against the traditional narrative. And that was us, you know, calling my album Blackface. And we said inside of every face is a blackface. Like, we really went there. And I remember going to the meeting with Randy Phillips. He took me to the meeting with Al Taylor, the big, big wigs in OCA. I was sitting at that boardroom, and boy, Randy was trying to backtrack. He was like, look, we can, you know, we can rename the album if you want to. Like, right in my face. I'm like, oh, shit. you go like yourself. you out like that right here? <laughs> and the, to my <laughs> surprise, to do Al Teller was like, no, 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 we keep it that way. And I thought he was on my side, but come to find out, they had just already planned to write us off. And, and so it wasn't even – basically when he was saying that, he was basically saying, ah, don't worry about it. We're not going to really have these guys no more anyway. <laughs> and, then, and then when I went on Arsenio Hall show and gave props to Minister Farrakhan after Arsenio had had him on there, which effectively put Arsenio out of business, I gave props to Minister Farrakhan, and Randy was at, our, uh, at the show at the Arsenio taping, and I kind of felt – you know, he came up to me, shook my hand, and gave me respect. Doing that because he knew that was a big move on my part, but at the same time, that was almost like the kiss of death. Like, he was basically letting me know, I mean, we can't have with y'all no more. Like, you know, shortly thereafter, we went to Boca Raton to break our album, uh, have this big showcase, and we had the works rolled out for us, and we killed it with our band. for all the reps that were going to be um, distributing, you know, they sometimes it allowed you to perform for them so they could see what they were pushing, the product they were pushing. We killed this concert, and miraculously, in a sabotage move with sabotage moves, the Blackface album got put into record stores before we dropped a single about a month and a half before we dropped a single. So after a month being in the stores and nobody knew it was out because no single had come out yet, then the record store owners give the album back. And, um, you know, that, that counts as negative on our sale and stuff like that. So they sabotage the album. Like nobody big as MCA is that stupid where they put out an album before we put out a single and it's not on purpose. You know what I mean? So, um, and and they did that. We weren't even on that little board when you used to go to record store. They would have a little chart board talking about the new the new um arrivals coming this next week. You know, this is they didn't even have us on that. You know what I'm saying? So that's why Blackface, when it came out, um, didn't do any kind of numbers, it finally went gold. And by now I'm sure it's platinum after all these years and stuff, but but yeah, went, you know, we, we kinda got we kinda got sabotaged for a lot of internal reasons and stuff like that. But the blackface album with the fans, it kind of caught on later, and then we started seeing testimonials and people hitting us up and different things, where people finally caught on to it way after you know it, it came out and they they got it you know and uh, said it was we always get that you know that album was way underrated way underrated, you
1: know, vastly, you know, underrated. I, vastly underrated. So I before it. we get to the question, I gotta ask: Being on MCA around '95, did you all ever run into? Uh, New edition when they were doing the Home Again album, recording that, like in the studio or just in the building. Um, um, we would like I
0: like you know the industry little functions and stuff. I would always wanted to like, you would see like Ricky in the building, Ronnie in the building, Ralph in the building, Johnny Gill, you know. Like, you would see these guys, you know, in the little industries. Yeah, what's up, bro? What's happening? What's up, that? Up? You know, we really, we was never really tied up, I mean, but we didn't have no, we, no, I ain't, we didn't have no, like, these, New Edition is the godfathers of this thing. This new, this, The new burgeoning R&B scene with younger people, you know, um, New Edition was the first one to come back and do that after, like, the old school, like, the Temps and all that. It was a gap, a big gap. And then, like, New Edition was the beginning of the new wave of that. Like, so they the godfathers to me. Like, they, they, they the most, like, their show is the most polished. They, They, they the most... They vets, you know what I mean? So you, you, they know how to do it. And so you got to know that. And so you look at them like that. So even though we, I was never like buddy-buddy with all of them, I had mad respect for each and every one of them um, and stuff like that. And then music just speaks for itself. So BBD came out of that and, you know, Poison. Who wasn't rocking the Poison? And, you know, I used to play ball with Mike Bibby and stuff like that. Every once in a while on tour, he would be somewhere around. And, you know, because people don't know that Michael Bibbins can brother, ball too. You know, look, man, in high school, this dude made, you know, they used to have this thing called the Boston Shootout, and it would be teams from all over the United States representing their state. Georgia, we we'll have a team, Maryland, D.C. They would all come to Boston and compete against the Boston team. And Michael Bivens made that team. And these are like the who's who, like all of blue chippers, the All Americans coming out of Boston are on that team. It's almost like the McDonald's All American game type of thing, but each city has a McDonald's All American. And Mike Bivens, in earnest, I sit there and watch because my high school. three kids from my high school got invited to try out. And two of them made it. Um, And I I went to the things with them to watch them try out. I was a junior at the time, so all of those guys were seniors, pretty much. And Mike Bivens was out there balling with the blue chippers and killing them. Understand me? Breaking it. Like, Michael Bivens is a point guard. So he was breaking their ankles. Just ridiculous. The passes he was throwing was looking like I don't know, Chris Paul or something. I don't know. The boy was just nasty. His shot was funny, though. He used to have this weird, funny shot. You know, he could make it, though. But his handles and his pants, oh. nasty. Mike but anyway.
1: The thing. Mike, Mike he's could have win pro. That's how, that's how good he bro, was. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to – the
0: only thing that could have gotten his way was his height, maybe, or something like that. But his, yeah. his offensive – the boy – that boy was a true ball player. Like, serious. And uh, so he saw me in Denver one time. He was, like, on a tour. And we got access to this gym, and it's Denver, so it's mile high, you know what I mean? But I I was such in good shape. And then Mike was on the court and stuff like that. We was balling. So Mike <laughs> threw me a pass. I came down. You know, Jordan was my big hero. So I took off sideways from the dotted line with that sideways gun. Boom. And Mike Zib was looking at me like, damn, bro. I was like, yeah, bro. You know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? But, yeah, But a new addition was, I, I, you know, we, we ran into each other all the time, but I didn't see them recording their music
1: and stuff like that. All right, so we talked about the Jay-Z joint, I Don't Want to Be Alone, the Marley Mall remix, which is one of my top ten remixes, of period. Did you ever get a chance to meet Jay when he did his verse?
0: Yeah, we met Jay, but not when he did. Let me tell you how this whole thing happened. This is a whole other thing I think the fans would like to know how that went down. Because um, it was real uh, – what's, what's the word that they always use for, like, um, clandestine? It was, like, some real clandestine type stuff going on. Like, so, okay. I don't want to be alone tonight. Um, cool song. You know, we did it. That was a fun video to do because the director, the little funny little dude, he was on roller skates through the whole video. Like, he was the director that used roller skates to get him around. It was hilarious, but it was fun. But anyway, so we, um, we got with Marley Mall. Now, during this time, it was one of them times where MCA had the turnover again in the black music department. And they came with this dude named Harrelston. Uh, Harrelston. I can't remember his first name. But he was whacked. He was really whack. And I hope you hear me, because he was a whack, whack, A&R, whack, black, head of the black music department. It was whack, 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 whack. He was trying to convince us. Well, let me, first, so we wanted to do a song with, um, we wanted to, you know, do a song, have a remix. Um, now, at that time, remember, remi- a remix basically was like somebody like All Star or somebody like that would get your, your acapella, and then they would make a track up on your acapella that was different from the original. And then it would be funkier, you know, more dancey or whatever. But it would be the same singing, just, you know, but with another track up on it. That used to be what remixes were, right? We wanted to do a remix. And, uh, Teddy Riley had done a remix for Coco and SWV, the Human Nature remix, which created a whole new paradigm of what a remix would sound like. Because he didn't just take the acapella. Them girls, we sang that. Teddy came out with that Human Nature. man, what? And so that set the paradigm that you can now do remixes totally different from the original so we we was in that line of thinking we came um to do the remix and with jay-z by way of marley Marl, we had a little some kind of relationship with with hot 97 marley Marl was the dj there the main dj and he had the top eight at eight and we kind of reached out to a few different pro- pro- producers but marley was the one who got back with us and liked the li- he liked shy and shit like that he liked shy so he was like well, look, I do remakes for y'all, man. Like, But um, um, here's a track y'all could use. And he gave us the track to um, Nobody Beats the Biz. Now, me and Darnell, we hip-hop head. Me and R&B singer and stuff. But we grew up as hip-hop head, like real hip-hop head. And so as soon as you... It's like, what? Oh, look at the rock this? Are you kidding me? So me and Darnell immediately got that tune. And we wrote that song. Me and Darnell wrote that whole song and arranged it. Nobody in the group. Me and Darnell sat there with that music. That, that, that nobody beats the bears music and wrote, I I think I wrote the first two verses and then Darnell wrote the second two or something like that. Or I wrote the first and the third, he wrote the second and the fourth or something like that, you know what I mean? And then the hook, um, we just changed that. Darnell changed it up to be that, like cadences and stuff. That, like the, the, the rhythm. And um, then we, it came the question of like, yo, who going to rock on it? And so he was trying to come with all these people to rock on it. Marley Marl was like, look, I got this kid that's bananas. Like, psh- and at the time, Jay-Z wasn't really out yet. He had just dropped Ain't no need like the one I got the one with the Foxy Brown. And um, yeah. that was like his first big, big hit. And with that song, he became like number one high at eight forever. So he got Jay-Z after we laid, Marley flew out to Cali, and we laid all of our verses and the hook and all that. And, you know, reluctantly, you know, uh, you know, Carl didn't really want to sing that last verse, you know what I mean, because he didn't write it. Kind of, He just he was a dope writer, so he, he kind of, like, didn't want to really, you know what I'm saying, he, wanted, he didn't really want to sing on something that somebody else wrote, kind of, but he sung it, and um, it was funny, because when he got out of the studio, he gave such a lackluster like, effort, it was good enough, but it could have been better, and he was too; he didn't want to improve it, and when he left out the studio, Marley Marley looked at us like, bruh, that, that's, that's what he giving us, and me and Darnell, we just kind of shook our head a little bit, yeah, like, yeah, you know. But um, they mixed it and made it sound good or whatever. But then the issue really was like, who's going to rhyme on it? And when he put Jay-Z on that damn thing, Jay-Z did three verses on that song. You don't never get a rapper doing more than two verses on a joint. It's that. They used to get a 16 or something like that. Jay hit, it, hit us with three. We also did a song with KRS-One called Destiny, and um, KRS had never done anything with an R&B artist. But he was so feeling the concept of Destiny, and Darnell did that track. He was so feeling that track that for the first time, Kara's one did a collab with an R&B group because uh, he liked our content, what we were talking about, and the track was banging and stuff like that. So those are two feats of hip-hop that we got to collab with in a way that, you know, really hadn't been done. Jay-Z has never done three verses on some R&B group song like that, and he killed them verses. My God, man, are you kidding me right now in America? He killed that. So, you know, and he told, we, we got to perform with him. That's how we met him. We finally met him. It was maybe like a year and a half later, Jay had started really coming into his own. I mean, like, really coming into his own. And he gave this party on top of the, a rooftop with Chris Latimer. If you know Chris Latimer, that's another mover and shaking. And the All African College Alliance sweatshirts, you know, remember that? The, um, all the different HBCUs. Yep. Um, he, that, was his, that was his thing. And um, so him and Jay teamed up to do this little party on top of one of the skyscrapers in New York. And um, he, oh, dirty was there. Everybody was there. Everybody at Jay-Z had kind of rocked with he did a show featuring all these different people for this little private kind of like gathering. And he called us to come rock that song with him. And we got on stage and, you know, we did that joint, man. and it, it was that, it, that, that did us some good to kind of like finally get to rock because the label never, the label, MCA, because we owe. So to get Marley Mall, you think the label paid for that? No. We arranged that on the low low. And so we came out of our pocket to pay Marley Mall, who only charges $5,000. He's like, look, man, just give me 5K, and then I'll make it happen. So we got Marley Ball and Jay-Z for $5,000 to do that remix. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, the label didn't pay for it, so the label didn't want to do a video for it. Even though it was, number one, Hot 8, and eight for like seven weeks or something crazy like that, the label didn't want to do a video. They could have just did a cheap any kind of video, just a visual to get put in the marketplace. And that song already was blown. It's like a little cult classic in New York, like some of the DJs, they kind of like look at each other as dope or not based on, yo, know, you got that Jay-Z shot in your collection? Like that that, that became one of a little, like a of thing and stuff. But yeah, they didn't do a video for it, man. But um, the song, we killed that. Jay really killed it. And, I'm, you know, that's one of my proudest moments that we got to rock with Jay like that, you know, who he became, you know, one of the greatest that ever did it in hip hop. You know, so that, you know, but that was proof of how the MCA even further dropped the ball. Jay-Z even told Troy Marshall, who was the record rep at MCA that time, the East Coast, he was like, "Yo, man, what happened? You know, what happened on a promotional tip? Like, what the fuck? What happened?" And um, he was like, you know, Jay was like, man, you dropped the ball. Y'all dropped the ball on that." And Jay Z told us that he told dude that he dropped the ball. So I felt good in knowing that Jay Z at least stepped to dude and told him that. And then Jay Z, and then Jay Z said, "Yo, that's that's my. You um, say like, those are my dopest verses to this date. He said that to that dude. And you know, Jay Z is Jay Z. So for him to say that." And we got some verses that, at that time, before he made them other hits, felt so, like those were some, some of his dopest work. Yeah, that that's a good feeling, man. That's a real. And a lot of people don't even know that he did a joint with Jigga, like that.
1: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a music head, so you know, I had to had to ask about that. So, if you don't mind my asking, why did Carl Martin end up leaving the group right after the Blackface album?
0: Yeah, we was lucky to have him that long, bro. To be honest with you, like it, you know, Carl was like. Him and Darnell started Shy from beta, right? And Carl at that time, if you want to go all the way back to the beginning, Carl had the most business acumen. He had the relationship with Gasly Alley. It wasn't us. He kind of like – so Carl in the beginning, like, he was kind of the move maker. He always was the move maker. Like, we were artists that were talented in different ways. Carl was the business mind. Like, I give him all these different credit. So Carl kind of always felt like Shy was like his group. You know what I mean? But then when we would go out on stage, they would applaud for me the loudest. And it was a lot of different things that he wasn't counting on like that, you know what I mean? So it was things that he would, you know, it was kind of like, yo, man, you know, I'm not really, really getting my due. I wrote if I were fall in love. That's, you know what I'm saying? Like, if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't be, you know. And all of those are good points, you know what I mean? But it, they're not all the way true either. But I can understand him feeling that way. So it became a time, we're going to the young man, coming of age, everybody's trying to, Still, who they are becoming in this industry as well as grown men, like who we coming in and life and stuff like that. And I feel like Carl felt like he never really got his due in terms of recognition for being like the guy who was the mover and shaking the group in terms of the business piece, as well as one of the primary writers. You know what I mean? He wanted to get more credit. You know, he, was, he wanted the credit. You know what I'm saying? He pulled a move on us where in the, the first album, he, um, us being naive, but Carl not being naive, while we recording, recording, um, if I ever, uh, the label came with their representatives. They had these sheets. Now, we, we straight out of power. We don't know nothing about this paperwork. And we trying to sing. we in the middle of a session, trying to sing. they asked asking us to sign this paperwork. Well, the paperwork was the splits for each song. And we had no idea about none of this stuff. Carl put his name on all the stuff as the head dude, like, all the, if I ever mixes, remixes, Carl Martin, Carl Martin, Carl Martin, and some of the stuff he was taking credit for wasn't his to take credit for. So when it finally came down to like, after the group was trying to like, when Carl was like leaving and we was trying to like, keeping the show going on, nobody would believe us that we had a lot more to do with the creation of these songs because our name was not on the credits. We didn't have credit for it, but Carl's name was everywhere. Matter of fact, Carl took credit for the If I Ever remix, um, and a acapella, which which allowed him at that year to have, he was the number one producer over Jimmy Jam, Cherry Lewis, and Babyface on Billboard that year. It was crazy. And, um, uh, but it was really Mark and Darnell's music that kind of like bolstered that. And so stuff like that was happening. And, you know, when we, you know, it start getting friction between us based on the fact that we weren't going to be like, Shy featuring Carl Martin. It wasn't gonna be like that, bro. Like we we built this brand together, whether you like it or not. So his solution was like, you know what? I think I've outgrown y'all. No hard feelings, but I think I need to go ahead and steal my royal oaks. So my royal oaks, you know what I mean? Solo. And and that's what he did. You know what I mean? Against the two against the advice of a whole lot of other people who just didn't want to see Shy break up, but who also knew that Carl, man, you're not no island, bro. You need them dudes, you know what I mean? Like shy is a thing, you know. Like you can do your own thing and still be shy. Like what's wrong with that, you know? But stuff like he had gotten his own manager, um, Benny Medina. While we as shy had a manager, Carl had his own manager within that. So it was just a lot of stuff happening and stuff like that, man. It was just kind of you know just typical group stuff, you know what I mean? Like like the five heartbeats that we watched every day, you know. It was all you know things happen like that pretty much. That sad to say, that story is more typical than atypical. You know, We kind of just fell into a typical narrative that you did. and after a minute, groups fall into and stuff like that. And then Carl, you know, he attempted to do a solo album, but I don't think it ever came out. And everything yeah, I was going
1: to ask, I don't, I don't want to be rude, but like, yeah, I don't think Carl ever did a uh, solo yeah. album. Which
0: exactly. kind of that showed can... that, you know, which it, kind of showed that, you know, like, it was really, a, if it was just all about, you know, Carl doing his thing and what he could have but he needed us and we needed him too you know i mean like we shot with those four members and all of these those members need it was interdependent no matter how you try to slice that and darnell let me tell you how dope darnell is in the group you know on the business tip um just for fans when we first started because the way i came into the group politically like i was coming in on the back half so clout within a group that had already been ticking plus their bond with their fraternal piece. I'm like a quasi outsider. So in, in the recording process in the in the writings, I didn't have a lot to do with the writing on the first album. But there was no way to distinguish, you know, why the record was selling. Was it was it just the writing? Was it the performance? Was it the image? And so the splits were really, really like I was getting like on the splits. Um I was about to get like crumbs compared to Carl and, and Mark and all that. And Darnell was like, man, do you see how these people react to Garfield when we come out on the stage and perform? Like, well, hold up, man. Y'all, you all know what I'm saying? Like, everybody's valuable, and everybody has a valuable role to play. And um, so we went to uh, our accountants, who was the Shaquille O'Neal's accountants, uh, Lester Municipal and Mahela um, Boulevard Management. We changed the splits against, you know, against You know, it was a contentious moment, but Darnell was like, look, man, if we're going to survive as a group, we can't have such a huge asymmetry in our pay because that's definitely going to break us up. And you can't quantify what people bring in terms of intangibles. He actually said this stuff right in the meeting. And as a result, we signed paperwork. Each of us got one-fourth, one-fourth, one-fourth from that point on. And that's pretty much what kept us together as long as we got to be together. Is that. That move right there, there wouldn't have been no shot probably past the second single if we had not have done that. And I don't think nobody's ever had, heard that before. I don't, I, don't ever, I never told nobody that, but what the hell? You know what I'm saying? That's just something that people could know.
1: I'm, I'm learning a lot, man. This is all uh, gold to me. So 98, the group dropped its first album, Destiny, which had the track you guys did with S 1. On the back of the album, yeah. there's a lot of um, Egyptian artwork, and I know the group name yeah. has something to do with um, Egyptian mythology, right, or Egyptian um, hieroglyphics. Yeah, they- the
0: hieroglyphics um shy is a concept that comes from the egyptian book of coming forth by day some people call it the egyptian book of the dead and shy if you look at hieroglyphic uh determinatives and writings and it really is a vital philosophy more than it is a writing but uh when you like the the thing if you look at the letters the end picture determines what the first word says so it reads shy and you see this figure which is a male and it's really destiny in human form or the personification of destiny. Egyptians always bifurcate their concepts. So if there's a male concept of destiny in human form, it's going to have a complementary equal uh, in female, which is Renanette, which is like fate, so to speak, in human form. So she's fate, the male is destiny, and together, those two together create future, destiny and fate. And so we chose the male side because Mark Gay of the group, and who was the alpha, which all three of them were, his speech that he pledged, Darius, he gave him the name shy as a you know, before the group even formed. He gave him that name because Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity is very high on Egyptology. Like, they're, they're the people who are pledging are called sphinxmen and stuff like that. And so, and me, just Garfield, I was just a person that studied Asa Hilliard and people like that just on my own independent self. I was always fascinated by Egypt. Anthony Browder, you know, I always studied Egypt just on my own. So, I kind of fell right in. To the, to the situation so I was like yo man we need to foreground that shy is, is, a, is a you know hieroglyphic con- concept um, and make the fans understand just like Earth, Wind, and Fire did that kind of thing we kind of like we're in the those that part of us we took after Earth, Wind, and Fire in terms of having a vital philosophy and if you look at that album cover artwork you'll always see the pyramids and we kind of like we're cutting that mode in terms of how we saw ourselves and everything so we you know shy became the justification of destiny and we wanted the label would never let us foreground the hieroglyphic aspect of it. They would never let us do that in our artwork. Matter of fact, on our first album, um, I mean, on the Blackface album, we had got with this guy named Vartan, who was the artist, the head of the art department on, in the MCA thing, who makes the album covers. Meat so meatloaf for everybody. And so we went to him like, yo, for this next album, we wanted to be special. And we came up with this concept, bro, where it was like a torch was illuminating like some kind of Dark cave that was up underneath, like the pyramids. And the light, in the, the lit foreground of the torch, the, the torchlight, you could see the wall with these hieroglyphic uh, people on the wall, which was the three of us. But the, the rock was falling out in some places. The rock was chipping off the wall. And at the places where the rocks had chipped away and fallen off, you could see our actual flesh face undertones underneath the rock, implying that we were like living hieroglyphics encased underneath. The, the stone hieroglyphics that was our likeness in front of us like we were actually living under under there like our, our actual selves. and it was powerful imagery and that we were going we were going to call that blackface and um man the art department had almost finished it and some director from higher up the issues that uh, blocked them from saying that we can't use that I was like wow so that kind of let me in too on um you know that there was definitely some control imagery shy is a god that's standing right next to the, the mid part of the scales. if you see that picture that that actually is shy um and you know and so that deity is there. but we were really steeped in um, ancient hieroglyphics and, as a vital philosophy you um, know i study you know a lot of stuff this is a guy named swaddled Lubitz who really breaks it down as a vital philosophy and i'm always reading and trying to advance my understanding of what hieroglyphics actually are and um you know what the symbol is versus the symbolic we philosophical stuff, but we were cutting that cloth, yeah. So, cool, cool. And for, for that I definitely want to uh,
1: 2004, I'm in the Air Force. I'm stationed in the UK, and I'm sightseeing around London, and I walk past the record store, and I see you all have dropped a new album, Back from Mystery System, The Love Cycle. What do you recall about yeah, recording that one?
0: Well, we didn't record it as like a we didn't start off recording that to be an album, like a project. We just, we were in the lab. We had picked up um, Eric Willis, um, which is a friend of ours from Howard. And he had sung with us on Destiny on a couple of the cuts. Like, remember Last. He was just on a couple of cuts with us. And we knew him from Howard days. Like, he was one of the homies. And um, so we just put him in a group from there. And we, every day, would come over to Darnell's house on Casio in L.A., Casio Street. And we would just be recording music. Like, we just didn't stop. You know, we were doing shows too at that time. We you know, even though we didn't have any music out, Shah was going to Germany and we were doing all these you know, a lot of little shows all around everywhere, Century Century Club and in the meantime we would meet up on different days of the week and just we'd be recording songs, creating tracks, recording songs, just creating a catalog, not for any particular reason other than the fact that we do music and we just need to be making songs. That's how we saw it. But at a certain time point, we had amassed too many damn songs. Like Yo, we're not to like vet some of these songs, man, because we just like, what were we doing with these songs? Some of them were getting dated with just the fact that we just didn't do anything for so long. Now the sounds were dated. We're like, look, man, we can't just keep singing all these songs and not doing nothing with them. And we didn't really have any money to get them like really mixed, like mix mixed and put them out like to the master, like Ernie Grumman, Bernie Grumman, Mastering Studio, like the real uh, mixed stuff. But we were like, look, you know, Nas and different people like that always put out like the lost tapes. And those types of, you know, albums, even though and everybody already understands that these might not have been the singles that would make the album or this might they, not, they might not have been completed or all the way finished in some form or fashion. But you can still hear the song I did and appreciate it. It's done enough to still, you know, dig it if you dig it. And so that's how that came about. We finally created a body of material that we were like, look, man, let's, let's just let fans hear some of this stuff because we've been away for so long and we do have music, but. You know, if we we keep waiting around and get a budget to mix it and we're not signed to anybody, we're going to be waiting forever, man. Let's just go ahead and just put some of this stuff out. And that's kind of what that was. And we ended up naming it back from the mystery system. And, um, you know, we performed some of those songs when we went to Germany. and People loved them. You know, when we sing them live and stuff like that, and we can actually make people feel them because they weren't mixed. So some of the songs were way better than what they sounded there in terms of if if some of the instrumentation could have been brought out or some of the vocals could have been mixed better and stuff like that. But it was still cool enough. To hear something, you know, but um, yeah, but it wasn't as quality as the rest of the joints because we didn't have it mixed. It wasn't mixed. None of those songs. None of those songs were mixed. None of them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I can't tell. It, was, it sound, sounded good to me, but for now, I don't have a Houston uh, there. All right. So, diehard fans know that outside of your music, you're also a teacher. One of the classes yeah. you taught was Politics of Hip Hop at California State. What yeah. was your syllabus in that class?
0: <laughs> well, the Politics of Hip Hop. It's actually a class in power dynamics. So, and the only reason, it's a political science class that uses hip-hop to inform the political dynamics. Case, uh, example, um, in, 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 in politics, you have political action committees. Um, look at the pharmaceutical one, the insurance one. They, these PACs, look at APAC from Israel. These PACs fund the politicians, and you put a lot of money behind their campaigns. Why? To get them... To represent their interest after they're elected, you know what I mean, and that kind of ensures it because now we putting this money in your pocket, blah blah blah, like this. On the music side, you got program directors. Um, you got money that comes to these program directors from labels. You know, they call it payola. It's supposed to be illegal, but they do it, and it's a budget. Yep. But it's to it's to make sure that the the, the interest of that label is is is, is garnered. So. If they want three singles to be played by these three artists, the program director might not even like them singles. But if the money right, he'll do that solid and y'all got to even exchange and, play, and you'll get your interest represented. You know, Puffy, all of them did that and stuff like that. So in, in showing the power dynamic that exists in a more uh, worldly or, or a more relatable way, like through hip-hop and how they get down, then it's then easier to have those same minds in the classroom transfer their thinking over to how that works in a political way. Um, venue and then actually be engaged in it since they have a precedent for understanding it in the hip-hop situation so we would go throughout the history of, of hip-hop but then marry it to the political dynamics that were occurring during that same time so it was an interesting class and out of it came a journal called hip-hop think tank and the hip-hop think tank were people who usually would be writing rhymes they had now started observing the landscape of hip-hop misogyny You know, different Second Amendment rights, freedom—a lot of different issues that they were writing about. That they've been affected by, um, as hip hop artists, they were writing research papers now about these uh, uh, topics that they were interested in. And these research papers, in our journal, student-run journal, were were published, and that uh, ultimately um, allowed us to go to a conference. Our group, uh, who had published this journal, hip hop think tank, was able to go to Atlanta uh, at Georgia State and present some of these articles um, uh, 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 that we had written, and it was through that, the presentation of these articles that were hip-hop but informed by politics and real research, I presented my work, and um, the head of the, um, the African American Studies Department and um, liked what he saw. He was like, you know, he wasn't tripping on the shot part. He was like, yo, that brother's a, a, a scholar. You know, he's an academic dude. I like the way he presented himself. I like the way, and they offered me, you know, look, man, if you like, to come to the African-American Studies Department. And me coming from Howard, it's a no-brainer to be interested in African-American studies as a discipline. And um, in, in Georgia State, Atlanta, one of the blackest places you can go to right now. So I was feeling at home, and he said, look, I'll give you a fellowship um, for your master's program, and you can come here and, and, and further what you're doing. So I was teaching as a, a high school teacher in, in Lawndale in, at the Environmental Charter High School. I was teaching I was supposed to be teaching California history, but I was really teaching sociology, and I was teaching life. (laughs) That's what I was really teaching. But I would weave in the history components that would uh, lead the criteria. Um, But uh, uh, but back to the syllabus. We were were reading, like, Bakari, Kitwana. We were reading um, Jeff Chang. um, uh, We were reading all the books that put hip-hop into a political uh, context. So you can see both dynamics working hand-in-hand, which is what they were. And then given a the history of how hip-hop came into being with the Boss Cream Expressway and the landlords, and you know, we get a whole history behind it. And I, I was designing those, those lessons um, to give. Like the professor, I, I co-taught the class, but the professor allowed me to really teach the class, and we co-made up the syllabus together and stuff like that. And so I was doing that while I was still a student at the school, <laughs> you know, and everything, cool. you know. So that, that's how that came about. I, but I ended up getting, i ended up going to the master's program. I forgot the, I ended up getting accepted into the master's program um, at, through through that work, and that's what allowed me to catapult to the PhD program ultimately in educational policy studies. And um, in the master's program, I won the ASA Hilliard Award for the most outstanding student uh, for my for my thesis. Um, I looked at what what was independent um, Black independent education. What was what was it? You know, what is Afrocentric education? What is it? What actually is it? What are the components? And so I looked at, I interviewed, uh, I did observations and uh, interviews where I dealt with three teachers from an independent black school and watched their pedagogy and, see, and saw what they stressed, you know, and the things that overlapped and the things that were different. And the things that overlapped triggered a sweet spot that I could say, okay, these things are in common. These might be a closer step to finding out a more essential understanding of what is, Afrocentric education. These things are overlapping. These might be a sweet spot. And so that was pretty much. And I came up with this concept called a class womb. Um, and, and the thing, like a, like a mom in a womb, uh, Afrocentric education comes from the premise of really, in effect, that mom being the first teacher transfers into a classroom where that class has to mimic a womb, has to mimic the thing. And the beauty of a womb is that it has everything for the organism to live right there in this, in this circumstance. And then the things that you put into the mom will affect the product that is being created within the womb when it comes out. And so certain affect pictures of black people on the wall, different things, when that student comes out, they're gonna have that muscle memory of thinking those things are important. That, that They're gonna replicate that wherever they you know. So after, that, that was, and, I, and my conclusion was that it needed more research to finally develop it further. But that's what I did and I got a award for it. Then when I went to my PhD program, just graduated last year, Um, I also got uh, the Outstanding Scholar Award for my cohort, and my dissertation, you know, was lauded at the, you know, the the top dissertation. And um, I looked at how black males navigated inequitable power structures, focusing on black males in the school context and class and focusing on black males in the music industry. And, um, you know, some interesting things that I came up with in that. But I'm a serious scholar, man, you know, know, and so I did that. I can tell. Um, That's what it is. That's what it led to, you
1: know. Yeah, that's the way you speak throughout these interviews. Um, like like I told you earlier, it's all um gold. You know, you have a natural uh, bravada to where you can just draw your listeners in and just listen to you uh, talk is very, very cool stuff. So I'm a big fan of musical biopics. Is there one particular artist story you've actually told on the big screen? Ooh,
0: my God, you don't limit me to one.
1: She
0: And everybody gets Jesus Christ, man. That is so I'm so fascinated by so many artists, even my contemporaries. Like Missy Elliot is like I'm going man, she still ain't got to put out the dopest music she can put out. Like I, I never got to... she man, if Missy Elliott came out with a solo R and B song, like straight singing album.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: <laughs> man. Look, so let me think. Let me think of Raphael Saadiq. I love that brother. Um, but like old heads too, man. Like some of the older heads, like, um, like the Donny Hathaway story needs to be dealt with, like you know, and and, and, and told fully, like who he was and how he had to deal with, you know, bipolar, schizophrenia stuff in the middle yep. of being a genius musically and what that led to, and and, and you know how you. Oh my god, and in the politics that he was dealing with musically, um, compared to what he was and how he would stop a show, man. Like I went to my first show I went to um was a Donnie Hathaway show where he didn't like the way it sounded. The show was supposed to start at like seven it started at eight twenty because he did a full sound check while we were there. And then he started the show as if we didn't even hear the tunes yet. Um that um but ah, man, who else Jesus um, Christ. Uh Yeah, Stevie, of course Stevie, I'm going to put Stevie up there, Um, you know, Marvin, but my contemporaries, man, I mean, I feel like, like, I want people to go and and really check out Michelle and Diggie understand her, because there are going to be other issues that that pop up, you know, like her sexuality, I think, yeah, dealing with how she was able to, like, you know, because, you know, she's, she's, um, what do you call it, un-, um, Unabashedly mm-hmm. who she is, yeah, unapologetically who she is. You know what I mean? And I think that her story would be a important one to foreground, so women like let her like her, her can see the strength in her and then really, really understand. Forget your sexuality. Do you hear this woman playing this bass right now in your ears? You know, like, but it gets to show her as an artist. You know, and and and, and but ah, it's so many people, man. And, and, ah, man, who else? There's somebody I'm missing that I really thought about this before, and I. I know there's somebody who I really, really interested in. Um, you know, of course, the princes and the Michael Jacksons of the world are big yeah. but I think there's there's people um, under the radar that are bigger than their under the radarness, and those are the cats. And I'm like, that cat needs to be looked at. Um, oh, Man, and, and it's, oh, Sliding the Family Stone. Well, that's old, old, yep. old. But I think Sly is the godfather of a lot of these artists that they don't even realize that he's the godfather of, Trent included, and um, you know him and James Brown, um, with that and, and Bootsy and Funkadelic and all that came kind of from the Sly. But Sly, y'all yeah, must say Sly because this is what Sly did, and people don't give him credit for this. All they know him as is now he like you know the drug thing that took him over. That's all they kind of focus on. But look, think about a time when black folks were getting lynched. Think about a time when the combination of black and white people on TV was not happening. So here comes this artist who not only has a band that is mixed with black and white people, but then he has a band where the lead people, some of them are women. Like the lead saxophonist lady was a woman. The lead vocalist over here was a woman, a white woman at that. And so he broke color barriers and gender barriers. And if you think about his music, there was no... Sexual explicitness to his stuff. He wouldn't know. All his stuff was very tape. Everybody is a star. Um, I just want to thank you for letting me be myself again. Um, all his stuff was like, you know, if you want me to stay, I'll come around the way. Like, all his stuff was like, I am everyday people. You know what I mean? Like, his messages were very universal and tactfully and tastefully and somewhat like um, galvanizing in terms of like coming together and um, he don't get the credit for being an activist through his music that's what I'm trying to say I think Sly and the Family Stone should be foregrounded for a documentary yeah I'll leave it with that one
1: Who are some of the current artists that you're listening to?
0: Oh well shoot man um, there's a couple of cats who I wish um, got more light um, you know, like the new, 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 new people. I like this dude named Um, um Jeremiah. Like, to me, like, he got songs. even though they're the younger kind of thing, his content is L to me. Like, he has a song saying, there's no we without you and I. That ain't, no, ain't no, you know, let me pull it out and stick it in. There ain't none of that. That boy saying, there's no we without you and I. And then the other one is like, um, Maybe we can be on chill tonight, you know. Let's not argue. Let's not fuss. Let's just cool out. Let's kick it. You know what I mean? It's enough of that. It's enough of that in the air. There's, that's a mature content, you know. Um, for that. I, I um, and he see, and the, and the, his voice is ill to me. Like I haven't. I like his voice. And then um, then then oh, I'm a big fan of Miguel, especially when he collabs. Like um, like when he did that joint with Wale. Um, Lotus I was man, I used to play that over and 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 over, and over, and over again. That hook is it. And that hook comes from um Michael McDonald. Um 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 <laughs> That's um Um, what's that song? You know what I'm talking about By the Doobie Brothers or Michael McDonald? Um Da, 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 take it away. Uh, oh, there was something back
1: was in the
0: <laughs> Whatever that song is, that melody is the same melody and stuff. Um, and Miguel, um, I, that other one, that um, what's that one? That one where he was like, um, let, uh, adorn you. Yeah. Let Man, that was a smash, bro. That would have been a smash in any era. You know what I mean? So I, yeah, know. I mean, of course. Of course, my, I, I like, them, you know, yeah, Music Soul Child and Dwayle, those are kind of the people who I love. Like, because they, they're not so new right now, you know, but I, I, you know, I like them too. And there's others, man. Like, oh, I like her.
1: Yeah. I like her yeah, a whole lot. Nick, I like that girl. Yeah, I saw a lot. Miguel like, on live. I, I've, I've been numerous see. times, but I saw him live on Trey Songs' Chapter 5 tour, and you know, Trey was the closing, and Miguel went up on second. And it was like seeing Prince reincarnated. I mean, that's how dope this day. Hey, that's a
0: bad boy, man. And you know what I really like like about him the most? Like,
1: he can really sing. He got these signature
0: things he go to. But the thing I like about him is sometimes he be like sharp or flat or something on some of his notes. But the feeling he put into it, just like Mary. It'd be the same. Like, Mary was like that. Like, but it made it doper is what I'm trying to say. Like, that that feel made you know it was authentic. Like, Cause he's so in the moment, and he can sing so good. You ain't looking at him like, oh, he You be like, nah, he was just feeling the right thing. He just lost his whole self, and that made me like him even more that he's that he can be vulnerable enough to just be natural with his stuff, man.
1: And he can, he's dope. The boy can sing, man. And yeah, I mean, he literally took. About... A... <laughs> he literally, he literally took Trey's tour from him that night. I mean, it was just like, you know, we, my wife was like, "You ready to go?" I'm like, "Well, no, I mean, we're, we're gonna watch Trey." Hey, man. He was saying, but I Miguel took I that man's tour from
0: Longway, him. Man. I I I anticipate when he comes out. Like I'll be looking forward to Miguel coming out with some stuff. I like him. And then um you, you uh and you know who else I like on the low 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 low. And people be trying to tell me I look like him because I got I got right like now I got long curly hair, and um my man got the same um hairstyle. Well he cut it I think. What's his name? Um, what's oh, my whole this dude? And he's dope to me too. Oh, oh, oh.
1: Adina Howard
0: always tells me that. I look like me and dude Look like, uh, man, how come I can't remember this brother's name? I'm so mad at myself right now. And he's a dope artist. He did a song. This song just be dope, man. I can't even think of his songs right now. I'm so mad at myself. But, um, God, you don't know the guy? He got like, he got long curly hair. Um, he, oh, the first song he came out with, remember Spandau Ballet? Um, with I know this much is true. Yeah. Ba, 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 ba. He redid that when he came out early, like 15 years ago. Um,
1: he had Lloyd? he was
0: doing a hook, huh? Lloyd, Lloyd, yes, Lloyd. Yeah, Lloyd's Lloyd there. I like that brother too. I like what he stands for. I, I like Lloyd. You know what I mean? I like him, but then I also like his songs. And I just, you know, he he does real songs to me. Like he puts thought and he writes well and stuff like that. But I've you know, I've always liked people who can write. Like I, I like I like Cool. I like, um, you know, what I'm saying um, I, I wish he I wish Day and her would do a duet. That would be dope to me. Like, Sade would update it. Like, Sade singing on a Janae track with Janae's lyrical stuff. And let Sade's voice be on that with Janae. I think they would make a dope. Because they remind each other's stuff. I think she's like a 2.0. She's got more increments in her cadence. But I think they'll be dope together, man. You know, as a dope. That'll be a dope shit. Um, But, yeah, I'm going to let out some people, man. But generally, you know, those are some of the people who I enjoy today.
1: So, in 2018, the group released its first album of new music in 14 years, Musically Yours. How was it getting back oh in the gosh. studio and promoting an album in the streaming age?
0: Well, we really didn't we really, like, we, Darnell, Dwayne, and G Slide, the two new members of the group, we got approached by that company to uh, to do some songs. And we already had these songs. And, um, you know, because the turnaround had to be quick and stuff like that. And then logistically, you know, like we didn't all live in the same place and everything, so it was kind of hard to get together and record some of these things. And I already had a lot of songs that I had just been doing just because I'm, I'm getting ready to do a solo project. So I, I was kind of like writing some new stuff. And so, you know, like, you know, some of those ended up, I took some of those and, and gave them the shy and we, we sung, some, you know. But we didn't, I, 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 you know, we didn't really get to. Really do those songs like I wanted them to be done. I mean, in, in in theory, some of them are good, but I have like the originals of those that ah uh, uh, that was not best project, you know. You know what I'm saying? But it was um it was it was cool to throw something out there. But that's exactly kind of how it felt like we threw something out there. It was like a lot of direction right. at the mm-hmm. time, but we we wanted to put something out there. But it ain't really mixed right. It ain't really some of the songs are finished. You know, they're mixed, but they're not finished. Like the creative part of them, we didn't really finish writing them. Like there's sections that seemed like one should have had a B sex. Like, so from an artists, I'm saying that. Like, you know, if people enjoy them, I'm sorry if I'm raining on your parade. But just coming from me putting something out, I just, you know, I, we could have done much better than that, man. But um, but it's out there. And if there's anything in there that people like, you know, like there's a couple of songs that people like on there that I, I'm hearing, but and that's cool. But it could have been way doper than that if we had a really had a time to be logistically in the same place and really record them and then really get them mixed and troubleshoot them and then go back in and fix things and then make them more dynamic musically here and there. And you didn't get a chance to do that. It, th- those are kind of like really like the equivalent to a rough, a rough sketch of what was supposed to be as a song. Except for maybe like one or two songs on that. on that.
1: No. Like I, said, I actually like that. bought the CD. I still support the artist. So I mean? yeah. Heartbeat dream,
0: might be the only one on it I, I like. Was it? Is it Heartbeat? Um, 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 heartbeat, I think it is. I think that's probably the one I like, on there. Yeah, I mean,
1: um, yeah. i I, I
0: see
1: it from time to time, like, you know, when I'm at the job or, like, on my phone. But, I mean, I still, if I can get a CD, then I'm going to buy the CD. You know, I believe in supporting yeah. the artist. You know, I'm an album credit reader. And, you know, that's to me. I'm also a collector. So, you, you guys get my support yeah. regardless didn't come out the way you wanted it um, to. Yeah, we didn't,
0: we didn't get to put the time into that. The quality control on that one was whack, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, in concept, like some of the songs, if we had a fully, fully pumped them out, could have been dope. But, um, you know, we'll we'll, we'll do better on the next go around. Like that same company is kind of like thinking about putting out another joint because I think they sold some units, you know what I mean? And um, so the, the next time, I'm going to make sure quality control-wise, even with the logistics being kind of skewed, you know, I'm gonna make sure that you know it's 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 on a different level because we 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 more talented than that, and I just felt like we underachieved on that one. But you know, just be honest. But um, yeah. So you know, and I have some stuff that I'm doing solo that I think is pretty good. You know, and I'm gonna, um, you know, I'll just shoot you some of that since I know you like music like right that. I'll just shoot you some of my little stuff that I'm working on just privately, and you can you know give me feedback since I know that you actually listen and you have your critiques and views are based on really due diligence. I love somebody like you to listen to stuff and tell me what's whack, what's good, you know, from your point of view. Because I'm real open like that. Like, I, I, I criticize yeah. my own stuff, so I have no problem with somebody else be like, yo, man, you need to try that part. That one I like, did, yeah, that part was boring. I like, but that part was cool, you know. I, I, yeah, I love that.
1: You know what I mean? What do you have for for 2020 once the COVID clears up besides your solo project? You guys can do some more... Um... Yeah,
0: more more oh, yeah, we never, you know, we never left we never left the touring scene, brother, believe it or not. Like, we've been touring. This COVID stuff, like when it happened, we were supposed to do a show in Milwaukee, you uh, know, in March. Got canceled. But it, it's postponed in I think, what, July? Uh, but yeah, we're we, we doing a tour pretty much with this guy named Young Fly Entertainment. He's dope, man. He kind of come and taking a collection of uh, 90s artists, and he got us out here working, man. I, if you're out there listening to Young Fly, you the man he um yep, it's like, he uh, yeah he put us on man I and mean, he put us on this thing so oh he got a lot of shows lined up and he put us on them, like you know at least maybe like 60 percent of them he put shy on them and stuff and so that, that keeps us out in the marketplace and giving us incentive to make sure we look good and, you know you know all that stuff is built into that and stuff man so we're gonna keep doing that we got shows still left to do we had just done a show in new york that Sunday before Monday, everybody was locked down. We had just come back from New York doing the show that Sunday uh, at a uh, at a uh, what you call it? SoBs. Uh, uh, uh,
1: SoBs.
0: S-O-B. We did the show in SoBs.
1: Cool. So fun. before we us, out, anything you want to add? And where can fans find you on social media?
0: Oh, um Glistics is um you know it's like shy but then you got the roglyphics part like hieroglyphics the roglyphics that's on um facebook and our instagram and then this the garfield bright page it's called the garfield bright experience and i'm on ig my page is private, but i i add whoever requested you know i just that's kind of like my little filter but i i pretty much add everybody who requests me to add on this stuff <laughs> you know what i mean that's probably why i only got maybe like three thousand followers because i'm kind of like i'm not really believe it or not i'm not really a um i never been Hollywood. I ain't never really been, like, I do music because I love it. I don't really do music to be all out there like that, even though it's put me out there like that. Like, I'm not a – I don't I, – I feel confident and secure in my own self that I feel like, you know, without that I'm somebody. So I don't really need the stage and all that. It's fun, real fun. But even without it, I'm good, man. You know, my spirit is good. Like, I, I just like to create as long as – I'm alive and I'm able to think my own thoughts and create things, um, that's that's a high quality of life for me, man. You know, And so this just puts it on steroids when you can go out and do a show in front of people and stuff like that. But, um, you know, I'm just a different kind of cat when it comes to all, all of that. Like, I'm not a real conspicuous, consumption-based person. I don't wear no jewelry. You know what I mean? I got a nose ring. I probably can't even hardly see it and stuff like that. But um, I'm not really highly real like that, so... I just enjoy the music, man. That's why I can so free to give props to other artists and stuff, 'cause I really be digging these artists, man. Like music, when I hear good music, that makes me happy, man. I don't care who it comes from, you know. It, it, and the fact that it ain't me, I be hating on now, man. Give me, man. I put meant to be meant in my little uh, playlist, and I am in no happier place, bro. When I put when I, when, 10 million strong by mint Condition, please stop the madness right now in America. And then that new joint Stokely got out. You heard the new joint? The she yeah, or something cheese. like that? Man, that boy. You know, big yeah, up Stokely. You
1: know,
0: when, That's my favorite, uh, man. They my favorite. They're my favorite artist. R
1: and B. I gotta send you my uh my Stokely interview that I did with Stokely. He was actually my first um interview when I started doing this. So Stokely was uh when I say he was a wealth of knowledge, he was a wealth of knowledge. I mean just like stories for days and think he about pop- where you
0: come from. That Minneapolis scene. And he's yeah. kind of like the protégés of the Jimmy Jam, and Terry Lewis, by the Fork Prince and all. He, he, one time we went to um, Minneapolis and he invited us to the studio, but it was Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis' studio. They let him just have his way in there. And then he brought let us come up there and just chill with him. The the dude is, is like a genius, man. He's a genius. And then yeah. the main thing he can do, and people don't even realize this, because he's such an outstanding writer and such an outstanding vocalist and an arranger, all of that, as dope as it is, pales in comparison to his drum shops, bruh. Yeah, boy is a drummer, yep. out of control drummer, man. So, yeah, this is a talent, yeah, seen uh, one of our, see, our few phenoms see, um, that we got left.
1: I got to send him an interview I did with him because he was, um, like I said, wealth of knowledge and telling him I didn't know. It's just talking to Stokely was like talking to you. It was just um, very chill, very um, organic, and just, you know, giving me knowledge that I didn't know and stuff that I didn't even um, stuff I didn't even think about.
0: Well, all right, yeah, folks. I got big respect for that dude. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me, man. I want to say that, and I appreciate this platform. And I've never oh, yes, told sir. anybody a lot of this stuff. I've never given this kind of interview ever. You know, I'm just glad to be able to give it to you, man. So, um, thank you, know. you for
1: that. So, once again, folks, that's Garfield Bright on reviews and done for today's interview. This brother wasn't shy. I hope you aren't stuff that you guys didn't know, and if not, well, now you know. So, highly, <laughs> I, highly I highly encourage you to check out. Summa Size, Summa Size work from their impressive catalog, and these brothers were much more than "If I Ever Fall in Love." So get on iTunes, get on Spotify, get on whatever you use to stream, and check out Size Blackface album. Blackface is very, very, very underrated.
0: Thanks. So once again, I I want to thank
1: Garfield Bright for being on. reviews and done for this for this interview. As always, stay positive, stay inspired. Be blessed. And to quote Maurice Wright, may you be ever wonderful. Done. Out. (laughs) Peace. Hey,
0: yo, check it out. This is the Wild Cowboy with a lot of style, boy. One of one. Untraceable. Punks jump up to get beat down. Slow down. And, yo, I want y'all to check out this podcast, yo. Y'all been listening to the Reviews and Done with your host, Derek Dunn. Be sure to check out ReviewsandDone.net. Understand that. Reviews and done that's D-U-N-N N.net. Word up. It's a good combination. Dot X and done. What's messing with that, peoples?